I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. And today on the show, we are exploring the history of the Midwestern whitetail management culture and the story of how Tom Indrabo impacted that, along with my recent hunt with him in Wisconsin. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And today we are here to wrap up my 2021 deer hunting season. This is the final episode in the series we've done this fall, recapping my travels, um, doing this kind of across the country adventure. Uh, if you haven't heard those, you know, I went to Washington, D.C., I went to Arkansas, I went to Alabama, I went to Nebraska, and I went to, did I say you always Alabama? forget Maine. Oh, Maine. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Dylan. <laughs> I forgot about Maine. So those are the places I've went. And that other voice you heard was Dylan Lenz, one of my partners on those adventures. Dylan is one of the cameramen we've had joining me because we're filming these hunts for a new show we'll be launching next year for Meat Eater. And the idea here was to put me into brand new situations in different regions of the country and meet up with a local legend of sorts to find out how these people hunt, learn about what they do, and then after that, go out on my own and try to kind of guinea pig what it is that they taught me. So I just completed my last hunt of this series, and that last hunt was going to Wisconsin with Dylan and another cameraman. And what I want to do today is explain to you what this hunt was all about, why I wanted to go on this hunt in Wisconsin, what some of my thoughts were going into it, and then Dylan and I are going to recap what actually happened. This is a little bit different than some of the past podcasts we've done about this because I'm not actually able to get my expert uh, here with me right now. So it's going to be me and Dylan talking first, and then will be joined by our regional expert afterwards, and just me and him will speak. And that regional expert is Tom Indrabo. I want to give you a little bit of background on Tom right now, and then we'll dive a lot more into his story and his history when he joins us. But 
here's the basic gist of of what we are wanting to do with this hunt. As you've heard in some of these past episodes, I've been exploring all these different regions and subcultures of the whitetail hunting world. But up until this point, I'd ignored one big elephant in the room, and that was the mainstream whitetail culture that most of us talk about and are part of, which is kind of that Midwestern whitetail, big buck, management, all that kind of stuff. Most of what you see on TV. Um, we hadn't touched anything like that. So we wanted to have at least one of these episodes, though, where we did explore that main thing that gets talked about. But we wanted to explore it in a different way and kind of look at it from a different perspective. So my idea, and Dylan, you can tell me if you think this is a stupid idea or not, but my idea <laughs> in the beginning was, why don't we go find one of the OGs? Why don't we go and talk to one of the people that started this culture? One of these I people. think you found the, the guy. Yeah, the, the man that is synonymous with, you know, big Midwest whitetails. Well, I'm glad you think so, because that's what I was thinking, too, because Tom Indrabo, like you said, he is that guy. Tom, well, you know what? Rather than me introduce him, Dylan, why don't you introduce him? Because when you found out we were doing this hunt, you were very, very excited. Was, my eyes perked up when I heard that we were going to Tom's place. And it was, I mean, Tom is just I mean, I'm going to get a lot of these facts wrong, I'm sure, but just hearing his name all growing up, he is the guy that built Buffalo County into what it is now as far as, you know, people knowing that that's a big buck destination. He was, I believe, the first outfitter in Buffalo County and, um, you know, has been infatuated with big bucks, you know, for the past 40 years. And uh, he started guiding uh, there back you know, I think it's the early nineties and I don't think he's killed. He said he hasn't killed a deer in those 30 years. He literally just lives to grow and watch and see other people hunt big bucks. So yeah. he's a guy that, you know, me growing up and, you know, loving big deer, I knew his name and I actually had the chance to meet him a couple of times growing up, but just knowing how into big deer he is was just something that I really admired. Yeah. Like you said, he, he was probably the first, if not, you know, very close to the first big time outfitter like this. He really put Buffalo County on the map. And then in the subsequent years, you know, starting in the late eighties, early nineties, all these folks kind of flocked to Tom to learn from him, to hunt with him, to see what he was doing. And a lot of folks from TV and magazines and all that. And then everything he was doing got shared and, and utilized by all those people and then kind of spread across the whole country. So, you know, one of my theories coming into this based on talking to a lot of folks was that Tom was one of the most influential people in really getting us to where we are now with this, you know, whitetail management, quality deer management, big bucks, uh, you know, everything that we hear about in the Midwest, a lot of it comes from, or was at least influenced by Tom. So my idea here was let's go and meet with Tom and let's get his perspective. Let's hear his story. Let's hear what he thinks the history was. And if he actually, you know, feels like he was involved in this beginning of mainstream whitetail culture and then kind of see how that actually started, where these things came from, what motivated Tom, uh, what it looked like in the early days, and then actually find out how did he do it. So I wanted to break down with him, you know, how he improved his properties and why is Buffalo County so great and why does he have so much success and what does he do on his properties to make him so successful? Those are the things I wanted to learn about. Uh, rather than doing the 
the same old, same old Midwestern whitetail hunt where you just show up somewhere and you shoot a big buck. I thought, let's explore this interesting story with this really interesting guy. And, and then, yeah, learn something from him from a hunting perspective. So that was the hope with this hunt and with the, the story I was hoping we could tell. That's why I went to Tom. Now, uh, I guess short, short uh, teaser here, Dylan. Do you feel like yeah. with our trip there, we just finished, do you feel like we achieved that part of it? Do you feel like- Man, we, absolutely. You, yeah. Yeah, you grilled him with all those questions that you just <laughs> mentioned in a good way. I mean, Tom opposite absolutely loves talking about deer and management and, you know, history of Buffalo County. So I think you guys worked really well together when we were doing these discussions and so many of these, you know, things that I had been curious about, you know, historically from Buffalo County were answered. And I learned so much more about not only Buffalo County, but, you know, just even his theories on, you know, how to kill big bucks. And to me, it was really eye opening and just absolute blast to be around for yeah yeah i I think um there was a lot of surprising things that we'll get into here in a second i think there was a lot of stuff that you and i were both like really (laughs) um it was was different (laughs) a lot of ways which is which is pretty cool to just kind of you know i love the fact that i'm constantly surprised when i talk to different people that do this whole whitetail hunting thing it's it's not gotten stale yet so that's been that's been encouraging but what what we're gonna do here when tom does join me later i'm gonna ask him to explore some of these same topics. So I want to hear from him again for, for everybody listening today, a little bit about that history, a little bit about that story, um, and then break down some of the tactical and management decisions he makes out there. Uh, but like I said, before he joins us, you and me, Dylan, need to kind of break down you know, the hunting side of it and then some of the stuff I was thinking about ahead of time. And Sounds good. And here's, here's where this hunt got kind of weird for me. Um. And you, you heard me kind of, I know you had a lot of like, inhibitions <laughs> coming into this and it was kind of, kind of interesting for me to see that side. Cause I mean, me going into this the whole time, I was like, this is awesome. Like, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so this was a weird one. Like, like I told you, and like we kind of reflected on throughout the hunt, um, Tom, as you mentioned in your intro, right? Tom is an outfitter. He runs bluff country outfitters, which is this, you know, famous operation, brings a bunch of hunters in every year. They target great big bucks. They have a lot of success. Um, And, you know, most people within the whitetail world, especially like within the media, go to outfitters all the time. Like that's just kind of a normal thing that almost everybody does. But I actually have not. uh, And purposefully, I kind of made it a a personal, oh, what would you call it? It was just a thing, like a rule for me was I'm going to do all this stuff on my own. I don't want to go with an outfitter. I don't think that (laughs) would be satisfying to me. Um, I want to do this the the quote unquote hard way. And so that was, that was my thoughts over the last decade plus. So I never went on an outfitted hunt like this um, for whitetails. And I kind of thought I never would. But when we started looking into like, what do we, how do we explore this Midwest whitetail culture? who we're going to go talk to. And when, when I kind of struck upon the Tom Injerbo idea, I had to kind of come to terms with, well, do I want to change that? Do I want to meet with him and do this thing that we want to do? Um, can I do that in a way that's, that's going to be interesting and satisfying and challenging to me, even though it'd be an outfitted type experience. And so I kind of wrestled with that and I was uncomfortable with that. And I kind of, I don't know, I had a lot of preconceived notions about outfitted hunts, but what I think, finally made me realize that I should do this 
was when I got to thinking about like what the whole premise of this year was, which was go experience these things that other folks do so that you aren't judging them or making assumptions about them from the outside, but actually knowing what it entails firsthand, right? Like how can I sit here on the podcast and talk about, well, you should do this in the South when I've never hunted in the South, or how could I ever do a podcast talking about, you know, tracking deer in the snow with someone when I never had the context of doing it myself to speak to. So same thing goes for outfitted hunts. Like thousands of folks go on outfitted hunts every year. And I have no idea what that's actually like. Um, so I figured, you know what? I can do double duty with this hunt. I can explore this history and the story and learn from someone who's managing a property really well. And then also see, you know, what is this outfit hunt? Like, is it really what I've always assumed it's like, is it harder than I realized? Is it less fun or more fun? Is it different? Um, rather than judging it from the outside, I figured maybe you should give it a try just like everything else and see what the reality is. So getting out of, outside of your comfort zone by getting pretty comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way of putting it. It, uh, it definitely was the most, well, in certain ways it was the most comfortable hunt in other ways, less so, but, uh, <laughs> we'll get into that. Um, but yeah, that was, I mean, that was where my head was at, um, coming into it. What did you, what did you think about that? Like when you, you said you were a little surprised by my concerns when, when you kind of heard me explain all this, did you think I sounded like, uh, I don't know, like a pain in the you know, ass or what? No, not at all. Cause I, I, I'm pretty much in the same boat. I've never hunted at an outfitter before either for the same reason of, I want to do the work I've filmed at a ton of outfitters and every, everyone you go to is a different experience. You know, a lot are more hands-on a lot more here. Here's what we got. You can figure it out on your own. And, um, before we got there, it was kind of not knowing what it was going to be. If we're going to have our hands held the whole time, or if it's kind of, Hey, you got the reins, go try and kill a deer. And I think that this was a really good experience. Um, you know, that was kind of on both ends of the spectrum there. It, it, it was what you wanted to make it. And, um, you know, coming into it, not knowing what it was going to be, I was open-minded, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a fair way to describe it. Um, so let's, let's, let's walk, let's walk through it. Let's break down what happened day by day and kind of what we experienced, what I thought about it, what you thought about it, how things went, what we learned. Um, you know, I, I was really looking at this hunt as a learning experience. This wasn't like, I want to go and kill a big deer. This was, hey, we're here to explore something new, learn a bunch. And and yeah, of course, try to kill a deer. Um, but, you know, this was, a, this was like a larger thing going on. And so that first day we got there and in the morning we met with Tom, you, me, our other cameraman and how do we start that? Well, you know, I guess we started at his house yeah. and it was just kind of breaking down the history with him, you know, talking about that stuff that you and I kind of teed up learning about how he got started, learning a little bit about, um, his, his story, his hopes and dreams leading into this. And then we hit the woods and hopped in side by side and basically my ask was, could you show me around? Could you show me some of the most important habitat improvements you make? Could you show me some hunting setups? Could you kind of walk me through how you do what you do and why you do it? Um, this was, this was going to be my opportunity to, to learn the how of how does somebody manage a property like this and set up folks for success in manage farmland. Um, so that was the plan going into it. It was. Sorry, what were you going to say? 
I'm just curious, you know, as, as we were out there, I mean, what were you kind of expecting? How did it, you know, how did it tee up to what you had preconceived, you know, before we got there? Well, you know, I think the first thing I noticed at the very beginning, like we, we set off from his, like his lodge setup, right? He's got a house, his house is there and there's a bunch of cabins around it for, for guests to stand. And then there's kind of like a main dining area. Um, and so we set off from there in the side by side and right away he did something that surprised me, which was that we set off right from the house, straight up this big ridge line, right into the middle of what looked like some primo bedding cover. That was very surprising. Right. <laughs> and as we're going, I kind of kept glancing at him like, uh, isn't this not the best? Isn't this not the best idea? I, I sure hope we're not going to hunt somewhere anywhere around this because he just drove right up into the middle of all this timber heading straight up these hills. And very quickly, you know, I asked him about that and he explained one of the main things that ended up being a trend the whole week was that rather than obsessing over minimizing his presence on these properties, he does the opposite. And this is, this is like the theme of the whole week, maybe, which was that instead of minimizing presence, which is what I obsess over on most of the properties I hunt and what, you know, you're always worried about when you're hunting new places, how do you keep pressure low? How do you get in here and out of here without deer ever knowing you were there? He's the opposite. His, idea seems to be and and what's proven to be successful for him is be there all the time make your presence known all the time and the deer eventually come to accept it and they know what's normal and they'll let you keep doing it now if you do something that's abnormal then yeah you're going to get in trouble but if you stick to the normal and you do the normal enough you can get away with a lot more so he drives around this property his his farm's very, very often. He goes and checks trail cameras very often. He checks a whole lot of trail cameras. He is checking out bedding areas, checking out transition areas, checking out ponds, checking out food sources all the time. It was um, mind boggling. It, yeah. it really was just to, you know, it's almost like he treats his farm like, like a park, like he's all over the place and the deer just kind of do their thing. You know, yeah. they're used to it. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is that the, the one of the coolest things about Tom that I picked up was just like this childlike fascination with deer and being around them and seeing them and watching them and studying them. You know, he is just in love with these critters. I mean, I mean, really, really, really is fascinated, interested by them. I mean, we we talked about this one night when you and I were hunting. I recounted one of these stories he told me, and I might get the details wrong, but he was telling me about this time when he'd been out just driving around or I think just walking around. He was walking around somewhere in the middle of the summer, I think it was, and came into some bedding areas, walking through there, and he bumped a deer out of his bed. I can't remember if it was a doe or a fawn or a young buck, something like that. Bumped this deer out of his bed. The deer bounded off like 10 paces and then stopped and then just stared at Tom. And Tom thought, huh, let's see how close I can get to him. So he just starts walking towards that deer and then decides, I'm going to walk right to the deer's bed. So he walks right to where that deer had been bedded the whole time, just kind of softly talking to the deer, just kind of saying, hey, little guy, how you doing? Looks like a nice day. This is a great spot to bed. And he eventually gets to the deer's bed. The deer, meanwhile, still standing 10 paces away, not moving, just standing there watching Tom. Tom then lays down into the bed. (laughs) And this great, he, he lays down into the bed all the while, still talking, still looking at the deer. 
Then he starts picking up acorns or leaves and kind of starts pretending like he's eating them and kind of dropping them. So he's kind of bringing it up to his mouth and dropping it, kind of just acting like another animal, I think was what he was trying to do here. Then he curled up in that bed as if he was going to sleep. And then here's the really funny thing. (laughs) He said he literally fell asleep. He fell asleep, took a cat nap in the deer's bed while the deer was just standing there watching them. All the while, just to kind of see what would happen. What would the deer do? What would he think about this? And if I remember the the ending here, he woke up like a couple minutes later or something or five minutes later, and the deer was still there just watching him thinking, what is this guy doing? Um, (laughs) I just feel like... like, That's like the perfect like illustration of a mad, curious scientist, right? Yes. Like just that's how infatuated he is with these animals. Like he yes. just wants to experiment with them. Yes. It's pretty cool. I, I think that was like perfectly illustrated. Like, a, like it was like perfect character portrait of Tom Ingerbo. Um, yeah. And so, and so we got to kind of see a little bit of that, that first morning when we drove up there, we went to this first big timbered point and he showed us like, Hey, this is one of these main bedding areas. These deer like to bed on. Uh, I'd say it was like, standard what you would expect in hill country right it's like big timber there's points coming off of high fields and off of these points there's does bedded there's bucks bedded down off of them a little bit um you know these bucks these deer in general could bed up there they could see down the valley in front of them they could smell stuff coming up from behind them if the wind was blowing down that direction pretty ideal stuff um he's got ponds put in many different ponds put into ideal locations back on these bedding knobs and ridges. Um, and then he sets up, you know, hunter setups off of these bedding areas. Um, it seems like he likes to put these ponds back in the cover tight to the bedding areas off these like kind of edges where wind, where your wind could blow off the top if you wanted. Um, I'm trying to think of any other details of that first specific setup we went to. We kind of grilled him on how he makes these ponds, what he's thinking about what he's, when he makes his ponds. Um, but more than the specifics of that, one thing really stood out to me at that first location. I'm wondering if it's the same thing that stood out to you. Do you Can you guess what I'm thinking of? Um, you, there was a lot that stood out to me, but I, I guess – the one thing that I was kind of shocked by was the camera placement. I don't know if that's where you're going with this. But. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Cameras, man. This is more of this mad scientist thing that I kind of gathered from Tom throughout the week, but just an overabundance of trail cameras. Like, I don't know what, what scientist needs this much data. You know, Tom takes trail cameras to a level I've never seen before. Absolutely. I mean, unbelievable. And what's what's interesting is it's not just that he has like a lot of cameras strewn out across the property. Like if someone said, hey, I've got 100 cameras over my 1,000 acres or 500 acres or something, I'd say, whoa, that's a lot of cameras. But that's not necessarily what makes Tom's trail camera strategy so unique. Yes, he has a lot of cameras, but he has a lot of cameras in the exact same places. (laughs) I mean, this spot, this first location we drove up to, to give you an example of this, there's this this point. Imagine this point coming off of the ridge, and there's a pond. The pond is like 10 yards by 10 yards wide, maybe, give or take. It's that size. And then this little bedding area, the, this little flat point on the top of the point is maybe an acre-ish, yeah. acre and a half, maybe something like that, wouldn't you sure. say? Like the region yeah. we could just kind of see from the pond. Yep. And just from this spot that we could see from the pond, this little acre-ish little flat spot. There were two cameras on the pond, 
there was two cameras about 30 yards down the hill pointing at two different spots where deer had bedded. And there was, I think, three more cameras up the point within the next 50 yards (laughs) on different trails. So he had, I think, seven cameras in an acre, in one acre, in like a, you know, like within a 70 yard span of space, I think seven cameras. Just this wasn't unique in this spot. I mean, this was all over the property. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that was like the thing is that you'd find spots like this, these hot spots where he would have it blanket coverage. There was a little turnip food plot we eventually get to that we'll talk about later where just in this little food plot within a 30 yard wide circle, there was four of them and two of them were 360 degree cameras. So they're cameras that take pictures in all directions too. So, I mean, he double, triple, quadruple, you know, checks every possible place and his whole point is when i asked him about this was that you know you miss a ton when you have just one or two cameras out there because deer don't always do what you think they go in front of it they go to the side of it even if they pass in front of it cameras miss a lot of deer sometimes and he doesn't want to miss anything so so the main thing i saw dylan was first the situation we just described where there'd be like this bedding area or that food plot where he'd have these clusters of cameras four five six seven eight cameras all in a tiny little area um seemingly a hot spot of sorts he had that this bedding area i think there was another bedding area we explored later that day that had something kind of similar the turnip plot stood out to me um he then also had individual cameras on basically every trail it it seemed like almost every time you saw a trail somewhere there would be a camera pointed on it any random location coming off of a ridge, coming down off a field, there was cameras hitting all of those major runways at least. And you could see, you could very clearly see the major runways because there was snow on the ground. So, you know, these are spots that I guess historically always get used. Tom knows that, puts cameras on them. Um, and then, at least when I'm thinking back on some of the fields that we drove around, um, he had a lot, like lining field edges, like every, I don't know, 50 to 100 yards on several of these fields we checked. There was cameras along the edge there, kind of on these like two tracks that run around the outside edges. Yep. So he has a lot. I can't remember what the total number of cameras was that he runs. Do you remember? I think I, I, I remember him saying somewhere between 170 and 200 for some reason sounds familiar. I know okay. he had, because I think he counts the 360 degree cameras as three cameras because they take three photos. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so he's got a lot in oh, yeah. in short. Um, so yeah, that was that was really interesting. That was one of those things that stood out. And actually, you know, I could see myself taking a little something from that and applying it to some of the places I hunt. Not to the same degree he does, but I mean, there's there's basically nowhere where I run multiple cameras in the same small area. I, I think I've got one food plot where I've done that before. But, you know, it makes a lot of sense. He's probably right. And I actually sometimes, many times, have cameras just sitting in my barn that I don't end up using, you know, for one reason or another, that I've just kind of deployed them in various properties and I end up having more than I need for that time of the season or whatever. I probably could better utilize them by, you know, double covering or triple covering these very, very, very best spots. Yeah, that Um, was really eye-opening. And I know you, you know, you think about it and a lot of times you are hunting and you see a deer that skirts you know, just outside of out of range or just behind a camera that you would have never known about. So that, that really did kind of open my eyes to the same kind of thing of, you know, maybe I am missing quite a bit of Intel. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think I'll be trying to change that a little bit this year, at least on the properties that I'm hunting. You know, frequently, year over year, kind of some of my local spots that I'd like to know really, really well, and that I can monitor. You know, all year long or all season long. You know, it makes sense to really, really blanket coverage those things just from just the the learning perspective, right? I mean, it's just fun to see what's out there, and I realize you know even checking cameras where there's a like for example there's a spot on one of my local farms where I do have two cameras on either side of a field where there's there's a field that narrows down into a little finger and if it's at its narrowest point it's probably 80 yards across okay. maybe a little less maybe 70 to 80 yards across and at that narrowest point I have a camera on either side pointing into the middle of the field sure. and I can see many times where there's deer near so let's say camera a is on the north side and it is taking a picture of what's closest to you but it can also you know capture stuff that's on the other side of the field just by luck right yeah and there's a lot of times where i will get pictures of a big buck on this one just by luck like it's actually taking a picture of a doe that's 10 yards in front of it but then the far background you can see oh wow there's a big deer over there (laughs) that's on the side where the other camera is that that other camera never happens to pick up because that yeah, deer popped out behind it or around it or was never quite close enough or, you know, there's all these different ways that can happen. So, I mean, I think that we miss out on a ton. So oh, definitely. that's one change I'm, I'm going to make next year is just pick that up a little bit in a few spots. Um, and, you know, I think outside of that, you know, we, we, we went around his property, about half of the property, his main property that first day, we got to see two of those big bedding knobs, you know, see how he implements these ponds, which is a really big part of his strategy. It seems like he puts in a pond at like every one of these good um, locations, almost every one of his main hunter setups. It seems like in these high ridges and points has a pond near it. Um, he also, I saw a pretty uh, somewhat frequent trend where he would have these very best points that come off. So there's a crop field at the very top. And then these points come off of those tops into the timber. And then he would have, a little tiny food plot inside the timber ways, like a little staging plot. And then further behind that. So farther down the point, he'd have a pond. And then at the very end of that is just straight timber, good cover. That's where the bedding's happening. And there was several different places that we saw that looked just like that. Right. Yeah. And that was pretty cool. Cause it's replicable, right? I mean, you can have the setups in several different locations as they're heading off to these, you know, bigger food sources. So it made complete sense to me. Um, you know, for, for hunting very smart, you know, um, uh, defined movements. Yeah. It, it was sort of, you know, there were certain things like that, that were like Jeff Sturgis light, like say, taking yeah. some of the things that you and Jeff do and yeah, applied definitely. in like Tom's own way, right? He's got, he's creating a line of movement there. Yep. That's going to get deer moving through a place that you can hunt, but in daylight. So right. that was a cool thing to see. He also made a point about how important those water holes are during the rut. You know, deer aren't very, well, bucks aren't very food focused during the rut, but when they're cruising from bedding area to bedding area to bedding area, looking for does, they're going to need that water. And so he really finds that those ponds help suck deer just a little bit closer to the stand locations and stop them along these routes. So hunters can get a shot. Um, So, so that was a big thing that stood out. So the, the ponds, the kind of transition lines where you, Pat or we kind of packaged those things all together, the trail cameras, those things stood out. And then the other big thing was that, you know, there's a ton of food. I mean, he had a lot of food out there. 
he rents out his main farm fields to a farmer, but then he's got spots where he leaves crops standing. So, for example, down the bottom of one of these areas, he had a ton of standing beans. And on another area, he had some standing corn and he had turnip food plot that we talked about. There are a couple other turnip food plots that we discussed kind of in this cover. So food is another big part of what he's doing. Um, I think this main section that we were hunting or kind of exploring was he's got like a 300 some acre farm of his own. And then he had access to a neighboring property. that was, I don't know, something similar to that. Yep. And so, you know, across all that, I don't know. I mean, if you think about all the standing food we saw between the corn on the top, the turnip plots, I can think of like three or four food plots like that. Then the standing beans in the bottom, the standing corn and beans in the second valley that we hunted that first night. Sure. There was some standing corn across the way. I mean, if I had to make a very just like gut guess, there's probably five to 10 acres of standing yeah, of food. That's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that was another thing, right? I mean, and I think that's a pretty consistent thing. Anyone who's managing property for deer is, you know, deer live and breathe with their stomachs. Like their world revolves around their stomachs. So making sure you've got that. Um, and, and that was, that was the stuff that really stood out from a, what's he done to his property kind of perspective. Was there anything else that you noticed outside of that? No, I think a lot of those things were, you know, very significantly eye-opening um, to me, especially just the way that he approaches his property and accesses it. But other than that, it was, you know, relatively straightforward. Yeah. So that, that I think is a perfect segue then into like our hunt, because that's when we got into like some of his hunt setups and his access and exit kind of methodology. Yeah. Um, you know, as I've tried to do in all these hunts this year, I've, I've really tried to take the local experts uh, perspective and, and trust it and try it. Right. And, and try to do things the way they do and, you know, see if I can learn from that and and figure that out. And so that's where some stuff in Tom's playbook kind of threw me for a loop. Um, (laughs) You know, after that first kind of midday scouting around, driving around, seeing the place, picking his brain about stuff, you know, we started looking into like, okay, where are some different spots that might make sense to start hunting? And of course, you know, hunting food sources in the late seasons is the name of the game. Let's find where the best food sources are. Let's find out where the most deer activity is. And then, you know, let's pick a spot where we can hunt without getting picked off and blown out. And so I thought, you know, we'd be really thinking about wind direction. We'd be really thinking about, okay, let's find a spot we can access without spooking deer um, and Tom had a couple surprising perspectives on this. And when he gets on here later, I'll, I'll press him on this a little bit more and have him explain. Um, but in short, he was not as worried about access and exit as I was. And he was not as worried about the wind direction many times as I was, uh, in both cases, because of kind of going back to the original uh, original kind of thing he does, which is make his presence known all the time. And so his idea was, man, I wouldn't worry about your wind too much here because the wind's going to do crazy things with all these hills. There's not a lot you can do to get away with it, but these deer in many cases will forgive that. Um, same thing with access and exit. I was worried about coming into, for example, one of these fields we ended up hunting was in a bottom and then there was 
timber on these ridges all around it. And I thought, man, there's going to be deer bedding off of these points and these ridges. And if we go walking into this bottom, they're going to see us and they're never going to come down and feed. Yeah. A lot of it, like the access really just felt kind of like taboo. Like, you know, you're getting in like, man, this, this can't be right. This can't be how this is done, you know? And lo and behold, it ended up working out. Yeah, exactly. And so that first night, you know, we decided, okay, let's just hunt an easy spot for the first night and just kind of, it was kind of a, I don't want to say it was a throwaway hunt, but it was a, let's just get a good intro for the show. Let's kind of observe. Let's bring both cameramen along somewhere. We can bring both guys along and film a bunch of different kind of discussions and stuff like that. So we hunted one of these bottom fields, the setup I just described, there was a, a narrow valley, the headed, you know, off of the main valley. And in there was a strip of standing corn and a strip of standing beans. And Tom had a kind of elevated box blind of sorts. Um, it was like one of those cloth sided box blinds. that's on like a five foot tower. And it'd be a spot that you, me and Tyler could all fit in and we could film and, and do a bunch of stuff like that. And then, like I said, there's kind of this, this V almost, right? There's this V of two points and, timber on all those and thick bedding cover and stuff and you know to make a long story short on that night's hunt the idea was hopefully deer would come off of those ridges drop down and feed into our field uh some did not as many as that we thought there would be uh but this was a warmer day and i think we saw like five does come down started feeding and then a coyote ran through and spooked everything so you know who knows what impact that coyote had on other deer that might have been coming our direction sure yeah but they were definitely on edge by that yote. Oh, I mean, they, they boogered out of their heart. So that was the first day. That was, you know, just a let's learn the lay of the land kind of day. Now, the second day, we, you know, as is the case with most late season hunts, usually it's a evening focus, right? Typically, morning hunts are very low odds because a lot of these deer, especially if you're trying to kill a mature buck, they, they get back to bed very early. And so it's hard to get into these places without spooking deer off the food sources or spooking deer that have already come into the bedding areas. Um, And so why a lot of people don't hunt mornings is that, man, you might have like a 75% chance of spooking those deer in the morning if you're trying to hunt them, but have a very low chance of killing anything. And so what you're doing is you're educating your deer and then screwing up your chances for an evening success when these deer do seem to move a lot more during daylight in the late season. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that's been my typical experience. Most places I asked Tom and, you know, these guys, if that's what they see here too, they said that, yes, that is usually the case. So we decided at the beginning of the trip, at least we would focus just on trying to have like some really great evening hunts. And then if it, you know, if we got desperate towards the end, we might switch things up. Um, So that second day, it was another scouting day. And then we're going to hunt that evening. So, what did we do? We filmed some more stuff with Tom and then midday we hopped on the side by side again and then had him kind of give us a tour of the other half of the farm that we hadn't seen yet. Yeah. And that was an awesome area. I I mean, after seeing, you know, the, the area on the first day and then going to this other area and just the amount of sign, uh, you know, tracks and, you know, just obvious sign that, Hey, there's a heck of a lot of deer hanging out here during the daylight. You know, it was kind of cool to see all that and know that. You know, I think that was, the, that was the big thing was like, okay, for this kind of hunt in this kind of place, it's just a matter of like figuring out what's the food source the deer are keying in on right now. And pretty quickly when we drove up to that 
other half of the farm and went to the top fields there, we realized like, oh, wow, this is where all the deer are. You know, compared to everything else, there was way more activity, way more tracks. Um, and it was just very clearly spelled out in the snow. You could see him just tearing up this turnip plot in the top. You could see lots of tracks in the cut corn. Um, we, we did another one of those drive up through the bedding areas kind of things. <laughs> so we saw tons of trails through there. We saw tons of beds. Uh, you could just see like, okay, there's a lot of deer in here. Pretty quickly I realized, all right, this is, this is the region I want to hunt tonight. Um, this seems like where most of the food action is. And so this is another thing that surprised me. We get up there and we're looking at stuff and there's a little turnip food plot. I don't know, like a half acre, yeah, something like yeah. that. And just ripped up. So I was thinking, man, this looks great. Um, then I was talking through, like, okay, what's the wind going to do today? And was, you know, thought, oh, this is do this would be just fine. And again, Tom was like, man, don't, don't worry about the wind too much up here. I was like, okay. <laughs> um, but it seemed like it'd be okay. But the big thing that surprised me, um, you know, I asked him if he had pop-up blinds and if we could use one. He said, yeah, definitely. He said, but don't try to hide it. And I said, what? He said, yeah, don't, <laughs> don't try to hide the blind. Just pop it out in the open. Um, and that one really surprised me too, because, you know, Absolutely. if ever I'm going to use a ground blind, I either want it, you know, set up way, way ahead of the season. So it's just there forever and the deer get used to it. Or if I have to pop it up and hunt it soon, I'm going to try to brush it in and hide it as best as possible so that the deer just can't notice it. Right. And that was not Tom's program. <laughs> no. Again, just against every instinct that we had coming into it, right? <laughs> yeah. His his explanation was that if you try to hide it, they're still going to see it, and that's actually going to surprise them more because they won't notice it until they get closer or till they like kind of see something a little bit off, and then they study it for a while, and then they'll freak out because it was it was jarring. His his recommendation was to instead put it out in the open and they'll notice it from afar and they'll kind of examine it and then they'll be okay with it. Um, and I think, you know, he didn't exactly say this, but I after I thought about it and watched what happened, you know, I think pop-up blinds like this and big new pieces of farm equipment or new blinds or new vehicles, I think those kinds of things just kind of show up all over his farm at different times of the year and are there. And the deer see that and they're used to it. So a big block showing up in the middle of nowhere is like, oh, it's just another day in, day in the life around here for these deer. <laughs> that's right. And they don't have negative consequences. I think that's probably the big thing is like, you know, most of the year, all this stuff's going on and, and people aren't shooting these deer. Right. Yep. Um, the vast majority of the bucks aren't getting shot at. A lot of the does aren't getting shot at. So 90, probably like 98% of the deer that live in these hundreds of acres are never having a negative consequence to a blind popping up brand new. So they're just used to seeing these things pop up and there's nothing bad that happens. So they just carry on. And so yeah, I think they're just conditioned to, you know, seeing intrusion and being okay with it. Yeah. And so, you know, even though you and I were both like, man, this feels like it's not going to work. We, <laughs> we decided to try it anyway. So we went back up to that turnip plot later that night and set up a pop-up blind right on the edge of this plot basically right out in the open. I mean, very visible, did not put anything around it, did not try to brush it in at all. And, you know, basically to make a cliff notes version of this hunt, had a bunch of deer come out towards the end of the night. And these deer come, came right into that food plot, right around it. And pretty much didn't give that blind to care in the world. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, was shocking. I mean, really? a, a few deer were like stopped and looked at it for a little bit. 
but then they just kept on feeding. We had deer that fed within five yards of it, 10 yards of it. <laughs> um, this brand new blind that had been sitting there no more than a couple hours. And uh, they were just like, yeah, look at this. Let's eat. <laughs> yeah. So I think it helps when it was, you know, what was the temperature that day? I think zero degrees or four degrees or something like that with a wind chill. So yeah. With so, a much you know harsher wind chill. So yeah, so that's a good, very good point. That second day, the the temperature dropped out of the bottom and we got to, you know, negative temperatures. And these deer obviously were really keyed on the food then. And that was another thing Tom said, both about the wind and like intrusion. He basically said, these deer are going to be so food crazy right now. They're just not going to care about a whole lot else. And, you know, we saw it that night. But the big thing that stood out to us was that while we had a decent number of deer that came into our location, um, I don't know. I mean, you know, there was like maybe six, seven, eight deer that came out to feed in daylight. And then after shooting light, another group of deer started working in. But that whole time, about 150 yards or so down the field was where this patch of standing corn was. And we saw just a boatload of deer hitting that all night. It just seemed like every time we looked down there, there was another deer popping out, another deer popping out, another deer popping out. So the big takeaway for us then after that night was, I think we really need to be down there. They seem to be keying in on that corn more than the turnips. So that was a big aha. Night number two got really, really cold and they (laughs) hit up on the corn. They really wanted those grains, I guess, right? Getting the carbs, getting the energy, kind of recouping from the Arctic tundra temperatures. So that was day two. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. 
It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. This this, this is my way of bowl saying. If I was going to cook roast one way, that's how I like to do it. Sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking creates searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill and enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. So then day three, you know, same deal. We're going to hunt the morning. We're going to hunt the evening. And I knew that we wanted to be on that standing corn. And there was another box blind set up on that standing corn that seemed like, hey, you know, there's a location there where we want to be. It is established. These deer should be used to it. That probably makes sense. But we had this wind that was kind of blowing from the timber out towards the field. And I remember talking to Tom and saying, hey, you know, I'm going to want to go towards that standing corn. That ground or that box blind is there. The wind's going to kind of blow out to the edge, though. Um, You know, I'm I'm a little unsure if I want to hunt there. Because if deer do come out on the far left of us, they might wind us. Yeah. So once again, Tom said, no, don't worry about that. Hunt that spot. If you like it, um, you'll be okay. And again, decided to trust him on it because he proved to be true the night before. And so this is, this is, the, this is an interesting part of the night because we go get into this box blind. This box blind is very tight. It's tighter than <laughs> what we were expecting. Yeah. So yeah, it was uh, tight quarters for sure. <laughs> yeah. So we're worried, like, how in the world are we both going to fit in here and have room for you to film and me be able to shoot? We ended up right. taking, there was two chairs in there. We took one of the chairs out and hid it underneath the blind. And that gave us just barely enough room to operate. You had to sit on your knees while I was in this little tiny chair thingy. Um, yeah, it was not ideal at all, but no. <laughs> we made it work. Yeah, and and we kind of had to choose a side that I would shoot out of, and you know we we based which direction I faced based on what we saw the night before. It seemed like most of the deer had come out on the north side, so I positioned my shot myself to be able to shoot to that side. And we said, well, if something comes out to the south-ish, we'll have to do like a, a little fire drill and switch positions. So let's not do that unless we absolutely have to. Um. And we kind of practice, what are we going to do in this situation? What are we going to do in this situation? We got the window set and situated and as, uh, I don't know, within an hour-ish, deer start coming out. and Yeah, the parade know. really took off from there. Yeah, it was, you know, doe, 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 little doe, little buck, doe, doe. And pretty quickly, deer were coming out on our downwind side and giving us, you know, a free pass. Not not winning us. So that was encouraging. I remember thinking to myself, all right, you know, this could work. And it was super duper cold. This was, you know, I don't, I can't remember what the temperature was that day, but again, in the negative, you know, I think negative 10 or something, wind chill, probably something like that. I think the real temperature was like zero or negative one, something like that. And, you know, these deer wanted that corn. So the highlights of this evening came, I think, the last hour, hour 15, probably. Yeah, I would say so. When we looked across the way, and in the way to envision this is we're on this this box blind, 
is on the edge of the timber and a cut cornfield. But the top of the, the center of this field is high. Like the center of the field is the highest point of this hill, this ridge. And then the field drops down towards us in the timber. So we are lower on the hill looking across, you know, at the uh, side hill slope kind of. And like I said, most of it's cut corn except for this patch just right in front of us. That the patch of standing corn was maybe, I don't know, maybe a half acre standing corn. Yeah, yeah, somewhere right around there. Um, And it's cut for the first like 15 yards or so in front of us, and then the standing corn begins. And then there's standing corn to the left and to the right of us about 45 yards or so down, give or take, maybe a 50 and and that's the setup and with about an hour and 15 minutes left in daylight i can't remember if it was you or me who spotted him first but a buck came over the top of that hill off to our south coming in our direction and then another buck behind it the first buck was what ended up being what looked like a two-year-old mm-hmm. like a i don't know eight year eight pointer something like that i think it had yeah. a split on one side solid up and comer uh-huh so he was first and then behind it was a big buck Oh yeah, and this Beauty. deer was like I think it was a nine pointer, right? Yeah, um, tight and tall. Like, imagine like a fifteen, maybe fifteen inches wide, sixteen inches yeah. wide, something like that. Yeah. Um, and then like really tall twos Just, and threes. Yeah. Great time, um, like. And right away, I'm like, okay, that's that's a shooter buck. And something we didn't talk about at the beginning, which we probably should have, was what qualifies as a shooter buck out here and this is a brand new thing for me so so this is something we should explain um i've never hunted a place where i couldn't shoot whatever i wanted um but here on on you know tom's place because he has you know clients coming in and wanting to hunt with him that are coming here and wanting to get a crack at a good deer at a big buck you know he's set kind of minimum size guidelines to try to you know get people to pass on younger bucks so there can be more older, bigger deer for future people. So basically what he told us was that 140 inches is the minimum size for a buck that you can shoot unless it is like an obviously big mature buck that has like poor antler genetics. And I think that's something that he was kind of telling us because, you know, I, I demonstrated to him that I know what a mature buck is and I could tell like sure. what would qualify as that. So I think when he was talking with us, he was basically saying, Hey, you know, if it's a deer like this, you obviously knows a big old buck that doesn't have potential from an antler perspective, that'd be a good one to shoot. And I guess what he says, nobody else really wants to shoot those deer, but I would be happy to shoot those deer. Oh yeah. So oh, I yeah. told him, man, yeah, <laughs> I'd happily take one of those, you know, those uh, bully bucks that no one else wants. But other than that, you know, you had to make a quick judgment on, you know, what's a 140 plus buck or not. And this buck that came out, you know, right away I thought, man, that's definitely a 140 plus buck, but it did look like a possible three-year-old. Um, you know, there could be tricks being played at this time of year because this is very, very late in the year. They've been run down from the rut. So this is definitely the smallest these deer will look at this time of year. So that's a good point. You know, if he was four, it wouldn't shock me either. Um, but the one thing I did know is like, man, he definitely meets the antler size minimum. Um, that's, that's a buck you got to take. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we all got, we were super excited. We got into position. We're getting ready. And his running buddy comes, he walks right to the corner of the corn and then comes into the cut part in front of it and starts walking down the edge in front. And I'm thinking, my goodness, these deer are going <laughs> to walk right in. They're going to walk right on the edge of the standing in the cut corn. 
and they're coming across. And I thought, wow, these bucks are going to come right across. And I'm going to have a 15 yard shot broadside shot, hopefully at this buck. Um, (laughs) and I just remember thinking as this buck was approaching, like, all right, man, just like, this is business time. Just focus on what you got to do. You focus on, you know, getting a good, you know, get, get your anchor points, right. Tank your time. Yeah, you know, I just was kind of like coaching myself through that moment because it seemed like this was going to happen. And then that big one got to the same corner as the younger buck did and stopped there. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, he's going to turn. And he turned, but instead of turning and walking down the edge, he slipped into the standing corn. Yep. And <laughs> from there, we progressed. Like, I don't know how this, how long this was, Dylan. It, it seemed like forever. Maybe it was 10 minutes. Maybe it was a half hour. I don't know how long it actually was. But for a long time, I sat there, clipped on, holding my bow, waiting as this buck kind of worked his way into the standing corn. And then he'd work his way down to the edge of the standing corn, but not quite come out. And then he'd go back up further in the standing corn, all the while, like slowly working his way down closer to us, but never coming all the way out. Yeah, extremely frustrating, you know, especially for, you know, kind of the position that we were in in that small blind and trying to hold still this whole time was it was difficult, super difficult. And I just needed him to come down a little further and step out of the corn and he just wouldn't do it. He he just kept he kind of get really close. He'd angle that way and then up angle that way up and slowly working his way down across. He eventually made it to the point that if that standing corn wasn't there, um, you know, I'm trying to remember if he ever was shootable through the front window. I, I think he would have been shootable through the front window I if I leaned so, yeah. over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, corn in the way. Couldn't do it. Yeah. But it just seemed like any moment he was going to. And his his running buddy was right in front of us, in range, easy shot at him. So I just thought, like, eventually this guy is going to work his way down there. But these deer who'd been giving us the free pass on so much else finally kind of gave us a hard time when one of these does got close to our blind and noticed that chair that we had hidden underneath the blind. And she just got spooked by it. It was something out of place, but I guess different enough from what they usually see. And she couldn't pin it. She couldn't figure out what it was or something enough Mm -hmm. that she freaked out and she blew at it and bounded off. And one thing I will say about these deer, while they gave us a lot of grace in a lot of other places, they definitely have like a a mass. They act like a swarm. Like if you ever <laughs> they trust watched, each other, <laughs> they do trust each other. And if you've ever seen like a video of bait fish in the ocean, when like if one fish goes one direction, the entire school of fish all goes with it, right? Like a big, huge bait fish ball. That's kind of how these deer work. There was probably like twenty, maybe more deer in the standing corn by this point, and when that one deer spooked. Everything went running like oh, a yeah. whole school of bait. It's just like, just like a bomb exploding. This like half acre <laughs> patch of corn exploded in, in deer and they all go running out of there, including the shooter buck. They all go running off. They stop. Like they all run like 50 yards, 60 yards, something like that and stop and then look back and kind of eye the situation. And then 95% of the deer just slowly worked their way back to the corn. But the one deer that didn't was the shooter. And he just kind of slowly worked his way away. Yeah, of course. So he slowly walked away, walked back in the woods. Seemed like that was going to be the end of it. It was super exciting to see a good one. Disappointed that it worked out. And then like 10, 15 minutes later, look over that same hill that the Bucks came from the first time. 
And here comes another big buck. I'm like, big buck coming. And I remember thinking, it kind of looked like the first deer at first glance. And I thought, yeah. man, like, how did he get all the way back over there? And then I pulled out my binoculars and I realized it was a different deer. This one was like just a standard kind of heavy-ish eight-pointer, you know, maybe like the 120s. But pretty quickly, you could just see like a bigger, heftier body. Like this was yeah, a deer was like pretty yeah. stout. That was a mature yeah. deer, no doubt. Definitely a mature buck. So I thought, okay, this is one of those bucks that Tom would really like me to shoot. Um, so then I got re-excited and we, again, got repositioned, got all set. He came and did the exact same thing that that first buck did. He worked his way down to the front corner of the corn, stopped there, kind of looked around, and then instead of working along the front edge, he stepped into the standing corn again. Yep. And the exact same thing played out. He kind of slowly fed his way through, sometimes very close to the front, but never all the way out, working his way across, closer and closer and closer to us, and eventually was right in front of us. I mean, the most perfect beautiful broadside 20 yard <laughs> shot you could ever ask for except it was blocked by you know six rows of standing corn there's just no way you could shoot through and that's what happened all the way till dark that buck stayed there every once in a while angling like he might come a little closer and step out but never doing it and we were just stuck there freezing our hands off ready oh, yeah. for it hoping he would come but never would and shooting late ended <laughs> And we were never able to get a crack at either one of those deer. <laughs> that was a very somber ride back. Yes, it was. Uh, it was. It was a fun hunt. I mean, I really thought for you know, for an hour and fifteen minutes, or an hour and a half, or an hour, whatever that time period ended up being, from the time that first buck showed up. I mean, that entire time, it basically felt like we're gonna get a shot. Like we were yep. in it, on edge. And, you know, every little thing you do has you worried because there's a bajillion deer around you. I mean, there was 30, 40 plus deer around the whole time. So, so many eyeballs, so many noses, so much potential for something to go wrong. There was just, you know, trying to make sure you don't make any off move, make sure you don't make any little click or clank or movement yep. or, I mean, it was, it was a very tense, tense hunt, exciting, but tense. Um, and I know you were struggling because you were kind of like on your yeah, knees, on just, your feet. Just not having a chair and, you know, with how cold the temperatures were, I couldn't have a tripod. So I was holding the cameras and fingers were freezing and blood was getting cut off to my toes because I was sitting funny and having to try and readjust. It was just, I, I was very relieved when we finally got out, <laughs> if that makes sense. As, yeah. For as much fun as it was, it was kind of like. Whew, we made it, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, the one other thing of note that happened that night were, you know, we we drove in a side by side up there, and we would parked it on the other side of the hill and walked down, and so we had to walk out again. And so I'm thinking, man, there's no way this is going to work, or I, not that it's not going to work, but I remember stressing about this access thing too. This is another deal where I thought, man, how are we ever going to get out of these field setups without spooking deer? Again, Tom told me, don't worry about it. You could just walk out, hop on the side-by-side, -side, drive out. They're not really going to care. Um, and I guess the, I guess this happened the night before, maybe. I, I don't know what night this happened. But it was either the, the first night that we hunted the turnips or the second night when we hunted that standing corn. Yeah. We, we, I used a coyote howl to scare the deer away out of sight. And then we worked our way down. I remember walking, though, to the Can-Am or to the side-by-side, side, whatever. I don't know what Brandon is. I'm so used to saying that. 
uh, walking to the side by side and we got to it and you could see all these deer on the other side of the hill just standing and watching you. And they, they not a care in the world. Like, yeah, they, hey, just get out of here so we can go back to eat, please. Exactly. They wouldn't spook. And I just remember like kind of looking at you and laughing and shaking my head. And then we hopped in the side by side and started driving away. And the whole rest of the drive going down the side of the field and the woods, I was just kind of looking around for deer and like just kind of marveling to myself, man, this is crazy out here. While also thinking, man, my fingers are so cold. <laughs> and I've got these two competing thoughts, man, these deer are crazy and man, my fingers are cold. I'm just kind of scanning this way and that. And then all of a sudden behind me, you say, Mark, <laughs> and I spin kind of, I look towards you thinking like, oh, there must be a big buck somewhere. The very first thing I thought is like, he sees a big giant buck. And as I kind of turn to look towards you, I kind of turn the steering wheel a little bit more too. And then, then just smash. <laughs> I ran. I'm surprised you're telling this story. <laughs> <laughs> This oh, is hilarious. <laughs> and I actually, I, I smashed right into one of his trail cameras that he had on like a trail camera uh, stake on the edge of the field. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, and you're like, oh man, you just, you just shatter that thing into a million pieces. <laughs> and then uh, by the time I kind of registered what had happened, I'd already driven like 40 yards past it. And I was like, I'll come back get it tomorrow. And uh, so, so that was a little embarrassing, but, um, but that was that was that night. I mean, it was a heck of a hunt. Oh yeah, super close call. Um, that was fun. And I remember at this point in the hunt, I had a couple thoughts about the whole like outfitted hunt experience. I remember thinking like, it's weird. I I did feel like just uncomfortable, still playing. Like it was like, it's like when you go to an Airbnb or something. You go and you realize like <laughs> I'm in somebody's else. I'm in somebody else's house. That's a good way to think about it. That's an interesting, like interesting perspective. But yeah, I could totally see that. Yeah. So I mean, I, I felt like, hey, it's a nice house. It's a very nice house, and I'm I'm glad they're letting me use it. Um, it's very conveniently located. It's well stocked with food in the pantry. But like the whole time, I just felt kind of like, eh, like it just felt a little uncomfortable. I didn't feel quite at home because like I hadn't set these places up, and I wasn't doing it quite the way I'd do it usually. And uh, like. I didn't have control over the situation and that still made me feel uncomfortable. Um, at the same time though, I was like recognizing, like I get why people like to go to Airbnbs. You know, yeah. I can see that it's nice to have a place like this that you wouldn't have access to otherwise. And it's nice to be able to go somewhere and see a lot of deer. And it's nice to have a chance to experience these things that you hear about. Um, and I recognize that most people don't have as much time as I have to put into doing all this kind of stuff myself. Um, so so I could I could see why, you know, it's an appealing thing and why, you know, Tom brings a lot of value to a lot of people because of that. So that was kind of like my midway through the hunt. I was starting to see that side of things, too. Now, I'm going to kind of fast forward through the next two hunts, two days worth of hunts, because I hate to say it, but we kind of peaked on night number three. <laughs> I'll just kind of I'll just give you the give you the. The headline right there. Hey, we peaked well, on night three. you have two shooters at, you know, 15, 20 yards and don't get a shot off, it's kind of hard to top that again because that's, it is. that's a feat in itself, especially as late in the season as we had it. It really is. And I remember thinking, like, I didn't want to say it out loud, but, you know, you usually don't get more chances than that. You usually, if you, if you do everything right at a place, 
you know, on a hunt, on a trip, if you get a shooter buck in range, that's usually like your best chance. And it's going to be hard to repeat it again. You get two yep. of them in the same night. Like, gosh, it's going to be hard to have that happen again so perfectly. Yeah. Now, this is a special place. These are different kinds of deer. So I remember telling myself, man, maybe this is the kind of spot that magic can happen twice. Um, and so we had two more days to hunt and it was time to pull out all the stops. So we decided to start hunting mornings. So we found some different bedding locations that were farther away from this food source that I thought, man, if we hunt these spots, we might be hunting different deer and we might, you know, not mess up our evening location. Temperatures got real cold again. Um, the first morning it was like negative four or something. It wasn't as bad. Didn't see hardly anything. Saw one little buck and one doe before shooting light Mm. that next night or that night we tried to adjust our setup on the standing corn further down so that we could intercept these deer when they came to the corner before they went into the standing corn but we tried the pop-up blind trick there and that day the deer weren't buying it for whatever reason the pop-up blind there kind of got deer uncomfortable and then when they eventually did get downwind in certain locations those deer got wiggy and so several times throughout the night we had deer get uncomfortable and kind of bust up the bait fish pile. Um, yep. the, the bait fish, uh, ball, what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so then day five, we go hunt another bedding year in the morning. It's like negative 20 that day. Very cold day on stand. And we that was went, cold. That was a cold one. <laughs> that was got good. in there super early too. Cause this was a spot. Like I really wanted to get in. This seemed like just an absolute dynamite bedding point way back in there. Um, we got in there an hour and a half before daylight and I thought, man, we're going to go for it. And we did. And we froze our tails off and just saw some does. So then it's the last hunt last night. I'm knowing these bucks are coming to the standing corn, but like, how can we get to a spot where we can intercept these deer when they come from the other side? Cause it seemed like all the bucks we saw were coming from the other side of the hill, coming over the field, then dropping down to us. And so I knew I wanted to be down on the South uh, southwest corner, but you know, doing it with the pop up blind wasn't working, and so I thought, okay, let's get rid of everything that has made deer uncomfortable. So let's go, let's get that office chair that we put underneath that one blind, let's hide <laughs> that again, let's tear down the pop up blind again, let's take that out of here, let's remove everything, and let's set up with my sticks and saddles in a tree down in this corner and see if we can hunt this location without the deer wigging out the, the night before and Man, when you told me this plan i was like you really thought of everything here like, we need, <laughs> you're, you're covering all your bases <laughs> well i just really wanted it to work out <laughs> yeah. i really i really thought man there was still a ton of deer hitting this food source they were all focusing in this little area um you know we did consider like should we go to the other side of the field and try to guess where they're popping out like should we set up closer to the bedding and try to guess where they're coming out of that but it just seemed like man, there's a million places they could bet over there. We don't have any intelligence on that specifically. We didn't have more days to observe and then make an adjustment. I just, I, I felt like there was a great chance we could go over there and see the bucks come out, but you know, we'd have like a one in 10 chance of picking the right trail that they'd come right. out on. So I just felt more comfortable having seen what the deer were doing at the food with my own eyes that I could pick the right location. And so there was one tree we could get in that spot. It was a bitch of a tree to get in. Yeah. We had a heck of a time, stressful. but we got up in it. And, uh, the story of that night was that it worked mostly in that tons of deer came out 
and the deer didn't spot us up in that tree because we picked a tree that had good cover. We got up high. We were well positioned. So we, we beat their eyes that night like we did not do the day before. And we beat their noses like we couldn't the night before. We, you know, we got super high, so I thought it was okay. The wind's a little better today. We'll hopefully blow over some of these deer. I used a lot of nose jammer, and I used the Ozonics machine that night too. And I think between all those things, we were able to get away with it. So we beat them. We beat their noses. We beat their eyes. We were in the right position. The temperature was super duper cold. It was really high barometric pressure. It just seemed like this is it. Oh yeah. And you know, as the deer were filing out, I mean, they started early. It was you know two hours, at least two hours before daylight, and deer were the deer prey was going on. Um, but unfortunately. Shooter bucks never showed up by us. We did see in the last like 20 minutes or something, two decent bucks did come over that came out on the other side of the field. And one of them was a buck that we knew for sure we couldn't shoot because he had a busted main beam on one side. And they knew that was a buck that Tom had specifically shown us pictures of and said that that's when he wants to make it. And the other one, you know, I don't know if that was a shooter or not. It was, it was a good deer. It yeah. Was a good deer. Yeah. I mean, it was like it would have been, been a, Tough one to pass on the last night of the season, right? Yeah, I think he he would have been one of those deer that was like he's an eight pointer that probably doesn't have a whole lot going on from an antler perspective. Um, that was probably mature, and so I think that was one we'd be okay taking. So yeah, if he would have come out in our direction, I probably you know if I could have got a better eye on him and confirmed my thoughts, he was one I was thinking that I'd take a crack at. But they came out on the other side, and he ended up chasing some does over there and running way off the other direction, and then. You know, that was, that was basically the night we saw tons of deer, but oh yeah, they didn't quite do what we needed. The right buck didn't quite do what we needed. And that was the hunt, man. Um, yeah. And it was, I mean, that was a blast. It was a great way to wrap things up too, to actually, you know, at least be in deer the last night and feel like you were in the game till the very end. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I felt good about the fact that, you know, we tried a couple different variations on hunting this little patch. We figured out the spot that would work really well. And, you know, they didn't show up that night, but it was, it was still like a small, like a little tiny, small victory. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it showed to me that, you know, these things aren't guaranteed outfitted hunts, right. you know, are not a shoe in it's, it's still hunting in a lot of ways, you know, um, I, I would tell you that like Tom, a lot of my enjoyment comes from, everything that leads up to the hunt. You know, he talked about the fact that he doesn't shoot deer himself anymore, but he's still studying the trail cameras and hanging the cameras and putting up sets and putting in food plots and doing all the, you know, all the different work throughout the year. Like that's his fun. And, and that's definitely for me, a lot of it too. And so I missed that. Like I missed what I love so much about hunting some of the farmland stuff I hunt in the Midwest is the fact that I got to have, you know, the summer and the scouting and the trail camera work. And I got to, maybe do some habitat improvement or I got to set up trees or I got to pick out these things. Like all that puzzle work is, is really my favorite thing. So I I missed that. I missed not being able to do that, but you know, from like a simple type one fun of going somewhere and getting to see a lot of deer and, you know, learning some stuff about how people do it in different places. Like it was, it was super fun from that perspective. Um, So do you think like looking forward, would it have to be a kind of a similar situation to this to do another outfitted hunt or, you know, is this something that you're just going to kind of, you know, maybe pass on in the future? You know, I, I don't want to say never 
because who knows, maybe there'll be something like this where there's a person or a story or an experience I want to explore. Um, but I don't see me doing an outfit hunt again. Um, and, and I, and I say that in no way because of like my experience there with Tom, because like the setup he has there is incredible. It's really, really nice people. Uh, I mean, great experience. And I can, I'd recommend, you know, this place to anyone who wants to try hunt like this. My, my dad was saying like, yeah, maybe I want to do something like that when I was explaining it to, to him. And I was like, yeah, this would be perfect for you. Um, you'd love it. Um, so this is in no way a negative comment about Tom's op- outfit there. It's just that I think that I really get a lot of my enjoyment out of like the type two stuff that leads to the fun eventually. Right. And, right. and I, I, I think that's more of what I want to keep going for. So I'm glad I did it though. Like I'm glad I experienced it. I'm glad I got to meet Tom and see how he does, does things and pick his brain and, um, super glad that I got to see that and experience it. And, um, you know, I think coming out of it, two big things stand out other than like all the tactical stuff we talked about, but, but more experientially, two things stand out. Number one, you know, Tom's just, we, we mentioned this already, but just his, his love, like his deep seated passion for this stuff just comes through so clearly. He is just obsessed with these critters. And I think what makes it so cool to me is that, He's not shooting these deer himself ever. He's not spending hundreds of hours studying trail cameras. And I mean, he studies them nonstop. It seems like every single time you go into there, he's in there looking at pictures. He just loves it so much. And he's out there watching these deer, filming them at nights in the summer, scouting, shed hunting, doing all this work. And he's not doing it to post a picture on Instagram and tell people what a great hunter is. That was also, you know, just crazy for me because I, you know, there's so many names in this industry that it's so ego driven and people want to do a lot of this research and stuff just so they can almost like put their patent on it. Right. I figured this out. This is the way it works. This is what you have to do. And Tom comes at it from just such a stance of curiosity yeah. that he literally just wants to figure them out for for his own amusement, you know, his own enjoyment. And he's not trying to put a spin on it. of Hey, this is the way it has to be done. This, you know, I figured this out. It's he just enjoys it. Yeah, exactly. And that was just like, that was so impressive to me and refreshing. And, and it just, I just came out of this thinking so highly of Tom because of that. The second thing that really stood out to me, and this is an aspect of like this kind of outfitted hunting experience that I did not expect or wasn't thinking of at all. But, you know, we got to meet a lot of other people there at camp. There was other hunters in camp. There was guys that were just like coming in to help out. Um, and everyone we talked to talked about the fact that it's, it's such a community that's been built there. Like everyone that hunts there now is buddies. Everyone there like is almost like family. It's a very, very, you know, very community based kind of experience. And which is pretty cool considering, you know, he was one of the first outfitters to do it. And, you know, so many other places don't have that feel of you know returning guests every year and everybody being a family so for this place to be one of the first and still be this way where it's not just profit driven it's about you know a community and a a sense of family is pretty darn cool i think yeah i think that's that's the big thing is you know he said mostly everyone that comes now is a long time repeat guest they don't advertise they don't try to get new people it's just basically that people have been coming forever that keep coming 
they just keep coming. So now it's it's like a group of hunting buddies that just gets together at different points in the season and they all come together and they eat, you know, lunch together and they eat dinner together and they tell stories and they look at pictures and they watch videos and they go down there and shoot pool and and it's it's really about that for a lot of these guys. I think a lot of these people love to go there and hunt and they know that Tom's got a great area and there's great deer. Um but there's numerous people they told us about, including a guy there, Dave, who was there for a few days, who, you know, he's technically a paying customer, but he comes down in the spring and the summer and the fall just to help. He's out there, like, blowing off the driveway. He's out there helping hang stands. He's doing all these things because because this community of folks that started out as outfitted paying clients have now become a part of this extended family. Um, and And that's something that I just thought was really interesting. It was cool to see. And I can kind of understand the appeal of that for, for people that maybe don't have a tight group of hunting buddies already right. or that don't come from like a, a family who did this or a community yeah. that does this. Like I can very much see how being able to go to one of these camps like this right away can give you a head start on, on you know, immersing yourself in a community of like-minded people that have a passion for this, that can teach you things that – um I, I could really see like that that surprised me that was interesting to me and and I can just see the the love for this place and in each other that you know is is in this camp right. so that that was a big thing for me too so I don't know man that was that's where I was at coming out of this I thought I thought Tom obviously knows what he's doing he's super passionate about it, it was it was very interesting and surprising how he did some of it I thought it was a cool property. I enjoyed seeing the deer. Uh, was really impressed with that community aspect. Um, I liked the fact that Tom really just kind of he he gave us the tools, but yeah. and he gave us the access. But then he kind of just let us do whatever we wanted. I appreciated yeah, I, that. That was surprising to me, and I was very very thankful of that too. It wasn't here's where you're gonna sit. Here's the way you got to do it. It was kind of hey, this is what you make it. Have yeah. fun. Yeah, I was I was very worried about that too. Leading into it, like are they gonna handhold us or not let us kind of do our own thing? And so I thought that was super cool. And, um, you know, overall a really positive experience, you know, we didn't kill anything. Uh, but as I've learned on this, this whole season, it's, it's, it's a lot more about the process than it is about the end result. And, and while this was a different process, this wasn't the kind of process I've had in other places, it was still a cool learning experience and it was still a great peek behind the curtains of a really interesting way of doing things, an interesting person. And, um, in short, you know, just another expression of the crazy things we do because we love whitetails. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. So any final thoughts from you, Dylan, or should we uh, should we wrap this segment up and then uh, get Tom on here? Um, I think get Tom on here, get his expertise. I mean, I'm just, I just want to express how grateful I was to be along for this because this is a dream come true. This is a very full circle trip for me. So it was awesome to be along for it. Well, I'm glad you're, you've, uh, you've been a great addition to the team, my friend. I've, uh, always felt really confident when you were out there with me. I knew you'd be able to handle yourself well, get some great footage and, and not screw up the hunt. So, uh, kudos, <laughs> kudos to you, buddy. Right on, man. All right. Let's take a break here and then I'll get Tom on to, uh, discuss some of these things in more detail. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. 
picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here, and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't is because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. Okay, now with me is the man himself, Tom Indrabo. Tom, thank you so much for being here with me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I really, uh, I really enjoyed our time down there with you. Uh, I guess a week and a half, two weeks ago, and uh, you know, Dylan and I just finished a conversation in which I kind of talked through day by day what we did, what we saw, you know, some of the things we were asking you about. But I wanted to get you on here to give me the the real story straight from straight from you, rather than me trying to recount everything. So, um, I guess if you're up for it, Tom, I want to rewind the tape. Way back to the beginning, because you know one of the things that both Dylan and I agreed on, and, and really why I was so excited to come down there and meet with you this year, was your early impact on deer and deer hunting, and, and really where we're at now. So much of that, a lot of that, began with you know some of the work and some of the videos and some of the influence you had back in the '80s and '90s. So can you just can you tell me that story again? Can you tell me how you ended up in Buffalo County, how you ended up filming deer and, and then eventually managing and helping other people hunt them? Where did that begin? Oh, well, I guess it was a uh, love of passion. I guess uh, 
I, uh, after, uh, in the sixties, getting out of the Navy, I was in the Air Navy for four years and I came back, went back to college for a while. And I kind of got lost in the hills down here, uh, knowing that big bucks were showing up and coming out of Buffalo County here. But we were kind of the first bull hunters in here. Back at that time, there was not much written on white-tailed deer. And so we kind of had to just learn it on our own. And uh, we, I just couldn't get enough in the hills and hunting in the fall. So I tried to spend as much time down here as I could. And and as time progressed, uh, you know, other people caught on to the, the potential in the area here and and it took off from there and we ended up uh years later started losing at the when we started out we could hunt on any farm uh, you know farmers welcomed you there they were eating up their crops and they, they wanted to you know get rid of them if they could so anyway we we uh had kind of the run of the place uh for years and then and then a guy started catching on and what was here for bucks. And, and we started filming deer and we were trying to shoot big ones. And it got to be kind of a passion uh, from the partner I was hunting with uh, who could get the biggest one on film every year if we weren't shooting it. We always, we didn't want it. We loved our time in the woods so much that uh, we didn't want to use our tag up. So even if we, we'd probably encounter 140 inch deer and still had a day left to hunt, we'd probably pass them and film them because we say, oh, I still got one more day. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was just a uh, love of, love of hunting and being out there and enjoying nature. And that's why I started filming deer. And uh, that just kind of grew from there. As years went by, we started losing land to leasing and stuff and, and realized that if we, if I didn't buy a farm or something down here, a place to hunt, I wasn't going to have a place to hunt. So I ended up, buying this place at an auction with the intention of hunting. And now I've been in here 30 years. And uh, the first year I was here, I was trying to figure out how to pay for it because I, <laughs> I didn't know what money I was spending most of my time hunting. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> anyway, I I, uh, I was asked uh, by a local taxidermist uh, shop that if I could take some guys uh, hunting that year and and which I did, and th- th- I enjoyed it, uh, the company and stuff, and and it took off on me. And I just think it was kind of by accident that I got it now fitting, but it was it was the fun of it. It allowed me the time to be in the woods every day and and film deer and study deer, and that just kind of parlayed from there and grew. And I got to spend full time hunting deer year round, getting set up for hunters to come, and I. As I, what I enjoyed was, uh, you know, this, the studying deer and, and trying to figure them out. And it was the challenge of it, I think, that, and if I could put a hunter on a good buck, it was just a feather in my hat. And it was, it was exciting for me, you know, as if I was going to shoot it. So uh, I didn't, it, that's how it all came about and ended up buying a farm here. And the outfitting thing took all off on me and it just allowed me uh time more time to spend you know studying deer hunting deer and, and uh, film them in the summers you know and when they're on their summer feed and and uh, i actually started with uh the, when i was first started hunting down here video cameras just came out and uh 
my uh, my brother-in-law bought a VHS camera at the time, and they were just all new on the market. He said, "Take that down there and film some of them big bucks," and which I did. And at the end of the year, I had a lot of footage, hours and hours of it. And I kind of thought, "Oh, he's going to sit and watch all this." So I kind of took the highlights and copied them over onto a tape, and and the tape back, I gave it to the neighbors, which were basically. You know, the meat hunters are like we used to hunt deer back in the day, and and they only hunted, you know, the farmers only hunted opening weekend usually with their relatives and stuff. So I gave them a copy of this tape, but it was bucks in there that we were grunting in and and bucks that they were shooting that year, and, and they were pretty excited about seeing that. And it was a whole new aspect of hunting kind of for them. So they showed it to their all their relatives and hunting you know, their hunting gang, and they showed it to their friends, and they all started calling me and wanted a copy of this tape, and and ended up, I, I had 600 calls on the, wanted, wanting this copy of this tape. Well, at the time, uh, you know, editing and stuff was kind of an infancy, and I ended up, I tried, couldn't find a place to you know, at the time to get them copied over, so I ended up buying six old VHS players copying them over and at home it did five at a time and then from there i got a call from robert manning which was uh qdm was just kind of getting started at the time and their advisory board was the 13 biologists of the different universities that had deer study programs it was james Kroll from texas and harry jacobson mississippi david gwynn from clemson and the the Robert Manning was the chairman of the board for the new organization starting up, and they asked me if I could send a copy of this tape to the 13 biologists. And basically, all it was was uh, my year of hunting and what I saw. And it, it, they they all looked at the tape. They were having a meeting in Atlanta for their organization, and and they were in the process of doing a videotape to promote their organization and after the meeting they invited me down there I didn't actually go or nothing but the uh, after the meeting they called me and asked me if they could use my tape and and they would fly up there and do a three-minute blurb about their organization at the end of the tape and that you could do this anywhere and that and that's kind of how it all took off on me and uh you know, one thing led to another, and at the, the first, uh, so I had this tape anyway, and I, uh, they, they had, I had to go in and re-edit it because it, in, back in the day, every time you copied it over, you lost a generation in quality, and uh, so I had to get all the original footage and redo it. So they paid me to go. I went to a public TV station that closed down at ten at night, and opened at eight in the morning and I'd work all night on it. I worked about a month on it to, wow. and put it all back together again and put their, their little blurb in it about their organization. And then they, they sent it out to all their members that would join them. So that kind of was took off and, and, uh, back the first, you know, at the time there was really nothing out there. There was no outdoor channel or any other, Hunting the the first shows that were on on hunting and whitetails was Jackie Bushman was on TNN, 
And uh, he came and hunted with me here, and he held up the tape. And I, I, that's when I really realized what national advertising was because my phone rang off the hook steady for three days straight till, you know, from five in the morning till midnight. <laughs> and it was, it was crazy. It, was, how it, how it took off on me, but it was all by accident. It wasn't that I planned on right. making a tape or doing anything. And the same with my outfitting business. So when I got this place, I, I, my, I thought, well, I know what I liked in the whitetail hunt. And every year I, I would make a list of what would make the hunting better for you know clients that came in and make my life easier, basically, make it more efficient. So we would would make a list and prioritize it and have the, do the, every year I'd do the things that would, were the biggest issues that would make it fat, easier and more efficient and, and it all took off from there. I I thought uh, at the time, too, that maybe, you know, how am I going to get Pope and Young Bucks for these hunters? And it's hard enough for me to try to shoot one myself. And, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so anyway, what I I didn't realize at the time, but by having hunters and when I, in the fall during the rut, but if I had 12 guys in the woods on stands, I set up and approach, you know, get them in on certain approaches and stuff. I was learning it, you know, 12 times as fast as if I was just doing it on my own because I'd be sitting in one spot versus 12, you know, and it really taught me, you know, fast. I mean, it was like you you saw trends and things, and, and that's how it kind of all began. And so here we are down the road, and I'm loving it as much as ever. Yeah. I run cameras now, and, you know, of course, everything, you know, over the years has progressed to a point where it's, it's, uh, it's still a little fun for me, but wasn't, I don't think I'd be doing it, but the challenge of hunting older bucks is this fun because they're a different animal than, oh, yeah. you know, a, a two or three year old deer. So once they get age on them, they, they, be, they live a different lifestyle, which is, is the fun part about trying to figure them out. So I love, I love that you still have that same genuine passion for it. I mean, that, came through so clearly to me spending that time down there with you that you are just as ate up with this stuff now as you were 35 years ago or, or whatever it was when these things began um but i'm curious tom you know you 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 had this videotape that you just were trying to share with neighbors and then it ended up exploding and spreading around the country all these people watched these videos um seeing what you were doing seeing the deer you were passing on seeing what was possible then you started improving your own property and you had clients coming down. And like you said, there was folks from TV shows and folks from magazines and all these different guys came down and hunted with you and, and they saw what you were doing and how you were doing it. And so you had this massive network of people that were either watching you or learning from people that hunted with you and learned from you. And all these folks now are picking up on the things that you in many ways started or popularized. What, how, does it, how does it make you feel when you hear about that impact that you had and how many people have come to hunting or learned about hunting from you in, in some way, what, what does that bring to mind for you? How do you feel about that? You, you know, it, it isn't, you know, to me, I guess it, I guess I don't look at it as any big deal really. It's that it's just, I just feel pretty humble about, you know, it, it, it was just a, a passion. 
passion of trying to learn about something that that I still have, I guess, because you never really master it on a whitetail. It's probably the hardest big game animal there is to, uh, you know, that you ever achieve any knowledge. And I, I realize that you know, over what I learned from my hunters too was good because there's some good hunters that have come through here, and just about everybody in the industry hunted here, uh, you know, sometime or one time or another. But the people you met and the friends, I I don't really feel like it. It was just something I enjoyed doing, and and it, 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 it this is what it is. It is it all developed. You know, it's like I guess if you spend enough time at anything, I guess I feel blessed that I was allotted the time to spend at it, which I still do. You know, some right now after season here, and I've I've spent the last month running cameras. And, getting a new inventory of what deer are left out there. And, and as they say, I found a shed yesterday. If I saw the deer, I'd saw them out of the house come in. It was one side gone and know the deer very well. And when I'm checking my cameras and there's horn light there yesterday. So he, I know, I knew the day he shed last year. And I knew, I, I know the day he shed this year. He's about two weeks early this year. A lot of times they shed just about the same day every year, but to be able to, have the time to do that. I think that's what I've been, really, you know, really feel blessed about that, that it all evolved into that. So it is a year-round job for me, kind of, that I enjoy doing. You yeah. Know? Now, what about what about the impact you felt? So, so tell me if this is true or not, but my reading of the situation is that, you know, in the years after that videotape caught fire and in the years after you started outfitting, you know, more and more people in Buffalo County started practicing some form of deer management, some kind of habitat management. And the same thing happened across the Midwest, right? To the point where we are today, where it's one of the main ways that people participate in hunting is managing the property for deer. Quality deer management is pretty prevalent in one form or another. So this thing that was kind of a little idea 30 years ago is now almost everywhere. What have been the what have been the pros and cons of that for you personally in your little neck of the woods? Have you seen things change? Have you seen the neighborhood change? Has it been good? Has it been bad? What's what's that looked like in your experience? Well, I you know, it, uh, looking at the whole picture of it, I mean, back when we started hunting, you know, back uh, in high school and back, we everybody went up north hunting because it was the north woods had been logged off and. Back in the 50s and 60s, and, and even before that, that, that was where all the deer were. The Midwest here, um, you know, hunting was basically family groups that did deer drives and, and shot deer for meat, and I guess the enjoyment of hunting too. And there was the hunting camps up north and stuff. Deer management, I think you know, a lot of people had the wrong, had the wrong idea on it uh, as far as, well, People want big horns or something. It isn't really about the horns at all for me at all. It's just it's about a mature animal that is wiser, and it's just a challenge of going after, uh, not just seeing something run across the field and shooting it. You know, it was like following him and, and watching him from year to year, what and learning about his lifestyle. Kind of, I think overall impact. I mean, a lot of people were really against UDM because they they basically enjoyed what they were doing and shooting any deer or whatever, you know, and of course they only spent, most people 
were busy with their jobs and their lifestyles, which they only had a weekend or two to get out there in the year. They didn't couldn't have the time to spend in the woods to, you know, so whatever they, they weren't used to seeing a lot of deer, just the one or two days a year, maybe, you know, and, and the impact, I mean, on it, there people, nobody likes to change. People are probably creatures of habit in a way too. So they don't like to change anything in their lifestyle, but, you know, as far as how much it caught on around all over the country, you can really see that in what's harvested every year now for age class deer where, where people are doing that. I mean, it's, they, most of them come through here, all the big ones shot around Canada or the U.S. every year come here. My son works with uh, Klaus Liebrecht and he, you know, and paints, uh, hand oil paints these antlers off the originals. They do, you know, replicas of especially the, the world-class deer that are shot every year around the country. So I get to see all those and stuff. But, I mean, the amount of deer, there was never any numbers of deer shot years ago like there is now that are, you know, older, huge deer, 200-inch deer plus. And uh, you never saw that years ago too much, one here and there, you know. But um, I don't know, impact on, you know, it, it, it's just up to people what they – what they get out of it or what they like they what they like out of their hunting or whatever it's important for me and has been for years for young hunters to shoot their first deer that's probably the most memorable uh hunt they'll ever have in their lifetime and i had two young twin girls shoot their first deer here this year the crossbow and they're they were nine years old and they i the, the satisfaction i got of watching them was just tremendous and so it isn't all about, you know, big handler deer for everybody. I I hunted uh, over the years here, 30 years, most, you know, we shot just whatever. I uh, uh, First-time hunters, I, I probably had 100 of them in here that shot their first deer here that that uh, was probably the most exciting thing they'll ever have in their life, you know. So I guess, I, I guess you know, impact on the area here and stuff, it it definitely is a big impact because land prices went out of sight. It's, it's a, I guess, a, uh, I don't know if that's good or bad or whatever. Everybody came in here and bought up land for hunting. It it did allow, you know, landowners or farmers and stuff to sell off pieces of land, and, and it really increased the value of their properties for them. Uh, but then, then also taxes go up because of that, and you know, there's a, it's a catch 22 kind of all the way around when you look at it for, uh, as that aspect that a lot of people can't afford to, you know, buy land now, especially for, you know, in certain areas where it has gone out of sight like that. Um, and like say taxes go up as land prices go up also. So the people who are forced to sell off pieces of you know, small property, you know, farmers, especially sell off woodland or something that they didn't really use anyway. You know, to be able to keep their family farms and stuff, and uh, it's everywhere you go. I mean, when when it gets more people in the world, there's more demand for things, and and it, it, there's so many things that cause that, even crop prices or anything. You know, which drives you can see that in a, in Iowa if you look at over the years where land prices have gone, the price of corn goes up, the price of land goes way up, and everything. So. It's a, there's a lot of ways to look at it, but it's I, 
I don't know. It's been just a fun time for me for really being able to spend the time at it, you know, yeah. and, uh, and follow these deer and learn about them. And, and I, I've been here 30 years and I have not shot a deer myself in 30 years. So <laughs> that's pretty, that's pretty uh, crazy when you think about it. So, so Tom, why, why is that? I, I, I wondered about that. that. That shocks me. You've been in arguably the best place to hunt deer in the world, quite possibly, or one of the very best at least. And you love this thing more than almost anyone. You, you're ate up by it, but you've chosen not to kill a deer in thirty some years. Why? Well, I get. I guess with the hunters I have in here, you know, uh, this year we got uh, we we shot fourteen Pope and young bucks that were twelve or more, one hundred and fifty inches. And uh, for me to get a mature deer like that, and once you get over. Uh, get over the hump of getting age on deer in your area you can shoot you know big deer like that every year it basically common sense to say well if i don't shoot him at one or two or three years old he's going to be there at four or a great percentage of them will be so we'll just shoot the four-year-olds and but if you shoot them all off every year before they get to that age you never have deer like that um i guess i I, I get my satisfaction out of being able to learn from them every year. And I, it's just kind of catch 22 because I follow some of these bucks. I follow some of them up over 10 years old every year. And, and every time I see them and learn a little bit more about them, I, I realize that, you know, such a small percentage ever get that age because there's, there's so many uh, ways that they die from infections or hit by cars or, you know, fight and they get it. Uh, they, there's just a small percentage that ever get that old, but it, when they, when they do get shot, it's like, well, it's kind of a anticlimactic for me because you know you you get you've spent so much time with that deer for many years and know where he lives, what he does, or whatever. But realizing that they're at the end of their their lifestyle, and that's why I realize that they're 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 going to be dead anyway in a year or two. So it isn't. It isn't. Uh, it doesn't affect me too much. Like if some people ask me that, oh, what do you feel about that when the deer gets out? Well, it isn't. They're they're a commodity like raising a crop, you know. And it's like a farmer raising cattle or beef cattle or butchering them for the you know the meat and whatever you know. The, I mean, it's it's really no different. You're you're almost just you're raising. I look at it like just raising cattle in a way, you know, or you're you just kind of target certain ones, and there's, there's, I would say, 80% of the deer out there never are have trophy potential. They may may get 150 inch at the tops and stay there, which is beautiful bucks, but they're they're never going to be, you know, a monster buck or whatever. So 80% of them probably should be shot at a younger age for the genetics. You you look at these game farms that raise deer. And they got 200-inch deer, their first racks and all, and it's all genetics and less stress and whatever. We're deer in the wild. They're stressed all the time, basically. We have, we have a lot of predators uh, here, basically, coyotes and, and bobcats. And there's, uh, I get a wolf on once in a while in this area. But, I mean, in certain areas, they're, they're constantly stressed for their life, so they don't, they, they never have the... That's a big 
as far as growth wise on a deer that uh, keeps them, you know, not like these deer that are not stressed on game farms, which uh, are in the genetic lines in them. But the genetics are here and they're in a lot of areas that I've seen over the years around the country. It's producing big deer now once they started doing you know, QDM and getting some age on them, there, there's good genetics most all over, you know. So this, this kind of brings to mind one of the, uh, a popular critique on deer management, which is when, when some people hear stuff like, you know, managing deer, like a, like a herd of cows, like you're managing cattle, you're uh, harvesting these deer, you're selectively kind of choosing which ones make it to older age classes. You're kind of nurturing them along. Some people look at this and they say, well, you're taking the wildness out of hunting. You're taking the difficulty out of hunting. You know, this isn't really quote unquote hunting anymore. That is, uh, that's a critique that sometimes gets thrown at this style, uh, a way of experiencing deer hunting. What do you, what's your take on that? Is that rubbish? Do you, what do you think on that? Well, you know, I don't think, you know, I guess, I guess it probably is how you look at it. I mean, it, to me, it's, it's just more of a challenge, a harder thing to, to achieve, to get, uh, an, a deer with age on it. Uh, they, they're much more, they're, they're, it actually, it's a harder hunt because you, you, there's so many things that, are, uh, they're a different animal and they, they've learned over the years that, that's how they survived. So, um, it, it, it's fun. I mean, and it isn't, I guess if you look at, it's not for everybody probably that wants to just go shoot it. If they want to go hunt on a weekend and shoot a deer, that's, you know, and especially, you know, that's up to each each individual. And if they don't have time to spend out there, you know, and really see nature, how it is and how these, uh, that was the thing with archery hunting versus gun hunting, where uh, it allows you to, you have to be close to a deer, you know, and get, get you get to watch them more and, and see the reaction, and you you have to make your reaction in close range. That's changed a little bit now with crossbows and stuff, where they're more like rifles, where you can just shoot it when you see it out there somewhere. It used to be they got to be within like 20 yards or less or 30 yards, you know. To, to get close and you got to see a lot of interaction in in deer and family groups and bucks and you know and and then to make your move when they're close to you is where i'd say probably 80 percent of uh, you know hunts that went bad because they couldn't get away with any movement or anything with a deer that close to them because they are so alert but i don't know I, I, you know it's up to each individual what they one out of hunting, I guess, you know, and, and I, I don't know if there's a, you know, what quite the answer is there, I guess it's, it's, it's a personal thing to everybody that does hunt, I guess, and how they want to, or what they want out of it. And I, what you put into it is really what you get out of it. You know, I guess that's, I guess that's what I, how I look at. The more you put into something, the more effort it is, and the more work you do at it, the more meaning it has to you in the end. You know. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's evident watching you the uh, 
the investment you put into these these places and and animals that you hunt or or help other people hunt i mean that's it's pretty apparent you uh you live for this stuff so why, why don't we shift a little bit into that side of things into how you do that what you're actually doing out there on the land um you know i got the chance to ride around with you and do some scouting to check out the property to see different parts of your farm um and i noticed there were a handful of things that stood out to me as is something that that seemingly you find really valuable but i'm curious rather than me putting my assumptions on you i would just like to know from your perspective what do you think have been the very most important habitat improvements you've made over the years to make this property this farm what it is now well i i i looked at it basically logically and say well, okay you're hunting an animal that lives he he's, has his senses and he has that's how he stays alive, basically, with his, his uh, sight, smell, and 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 then they they it's all about feed for animals and and habitat of of where you know security where they can live and not get bothered, basically, and, and exist. And so I I think what I I looked at that and some of that stuff. You, when you, you just you observe sign and what deer were doing, and then you say, well, what could I do to to make that better or whatever? And one thing I noticed was like uh, watering holes or like I remember hunting an area years ago and I'd walk in on a logging road and there was spots where the skidsters and stuff had skidders had you know dug holes kind of and they were mud holes when it rained and there was peppered with deer tracks around them. So I thought, you know, water is a key, especially in country like this where there's these high ridges and there's no water on top, but they got to go all the way down the bottom to water. And I thought, well, well, if you put in a little pond or a little watering hole, even just a mud hole uh, that could hold water. So we ended up putting in ponds and at little ponds that were with a small cat. We'd probably dig them four or five feet deep, push the top dirt off, and then dig the clay out, dig a little deeper, and then just make an you know, impression there and push the clay back in, drive over it with a cat. And and where the spots we put them in, we learned quick that you don't want to put them in any kind of a drainage or wash or anything. You want to almost put them in on a flat or just off a hillside a little bit. And the other thing was, where the deer for their senses would be that they could see around. They, if they put them in down in a hole or something, they were always leery of going there because they're down in the hole and for predators to, you know, come in on them or whatever. Uh, so they like to be more open where they can see out. And the other thing was putting them in, in where you have good oaks or good trees for shade. So they didn't, it was just rainwater. So, so it wouldn't evaporate out if it was out in the middle of a field or something. Usually in hot spells, it all evaporated out pretty fast. Where uh, and then we just probably below in a little slide above the pond to just to run water into it when it did rain. So they're all just you know rain filled ponds. And those have been very good. And they worked out. Put them in, um, you know, and then thinking well during the rut these bucks are they're not feeding or anything they're not interested in feed so they that they got a water so they'd end up we put them in on these ridges where there was big bedding areas for does 
and put them in just off the sides of them where they travel routes in and out where these bucks would come in during the rut to get in there looking for a doe, but invariably they go to that pond of water because, and we have a pond up on the hill here. We've shot over 40 Pope and Youngs off that pond. And we'll, it isn't, uh, we've got a couple of years, we've got three off there in, in, a, in a week. You know, there's different bucks coming in. They're looking for does, so there's different bucks there every day from maybe off a ways. They're not, not even a resident buck that would come in there trying to push out some does that are coming in to eat or check it out, and they go to the pond. So that's probably one of the big things. Feed is, you know, I, in in this country, you know, deer deer get used to certain things like people adapt for food. Uh, you have likes and dislikes, and I noticed that we used to go to Canada. We used to go to Saskatchewan shed hunting every year and got up there, and they didn't have much feed anywhere in the winter. If there was a stand in a wheat field or whatever deer in the area was there, or they were all in the feed lots at the at the ranchers. So they all bunched up wherever there was feed. Well, they said, oh, you got to plant sunflowers. They, God, they just demolished those things. And Well, I did, and it was all birds in there. There was no deer because here they had so many other good, you know, much other good food to eat, like alfalfa and clover and acorns and and apples, and they got everything else. That they didn't touch sunflowers. The only reason they ate them up there was the only feed they had to eat, you know, so they that's why they ended up there. But I'd look at things like that and say, well, what what is the most important thing? And food is one, which I'd leave soybeans every year. I leave fields of soybeans and and corn too. Corn, I notice it's more of a filler. I don't know how uh, they'll eat. They like grazing it off the ground versus on the stock. The only reason I leave standing fields around here and there sometimes is if we get deep snow and ice storms where they can still get at it. It's a little harder for them to eat it off a, off a cob hanging there. But the beans are good year round. They eat the leaves off, and I film, you know, bachelor groups of bucks in them and in july and august and then they eat the leaves off and they'll eat every leaf off a whole field and the beans are still on there then in the fall and and now is the time right now i can look out here and pound it out here in these bean fields i have around my house so i'll have a hundred deer in here wintering in the beans and they'll usually eat them out if you got you know depends on how big your herd is or how many deer and they'll come from several miles away they find feed if it gets you know scarce in the winter, but like a lot of farms take all the crops off, so there is nothing to eat. But uh, and in in even in winters, I found out that if you have uh, a, a mild winter here with these steep slopes and buffalo here, they melt off fairly easy. But it's 20 degrees, the salt slopes melt off, and they get at you know acorns. If you had a good acorn crop, or they got browse they can eat. They'd rather eat that than standing corn or something where. Uh, even beans, they'll be in those beans at night. But I mean, during the day, they're browsing on, and they'll they'll use the natural browse uh, if they can get at it. So I try to fill in those gaps. You know what what is important? Water is the key. Even one one interesting thing I figured out was on on our ponds when we put them in, thinking that yeah, they're they're going to. Uh, use them during the rut when they're dehydrated, they're running steady and they, they got a drink. So they come in, but early in the year in September, October, sometimes we'd have like a long 
dry spell or drought kind of in the ponds. I thought, well, gee, the deer should be on those ponds steady, you know, and they weren't. I'd sit those ponds and wouldn't see nothing. And I finally figured out that uh, early in September and October, it's usually uh, at night, it gets real foggy at night and, and there's so much uh, humidity and dew on on the plants on it. So they're getting their uh, elf, uh, water off the plants. So it came down to if it was windy or not. So if it was windy, it would dry out the alfalfa fields as the standing crops and they wouldn't get any moisture off them so they'd have to go to the ponds. But if they didn't, if it was windy, it wasn't windy and it was real heavy dew, they'd get plenty of moisture just eating you know, at, at alfalfa or clover or something, and they didn't have to go to the pond. So uh, that was kind of an eye-opener for me. But so I'd watch the wind, and and you could tell when they were going to be on the ponds or not. So real quick on the pond topic before going further, can you yeah. can you give me just a little bit more detail on how to do those right? Because I think that was really one of the things that, stood out to me was just how many ponds you put in and the care you put into those. You mentioned that you like to put them on the ridges. You like to use a, you know, a dozer to carve out a hole. You mentioned that you like to put them back there, you know, near oaks off those points. But can you give me any more specifics on how big, how deep, what you use to line them, any mistakes people usually make? Okay. So you, first thing we do, I, I, we ended up actually is, I had a guy with a small cat that put in all my ponds, and I actually went to Illinois. Guys call me, and we'd go look at other areas and, and lay out ponds for them, where to put them. Uh, the key to it is, uh, I, I look at a like a ridge system or something, or where where there's big bedding areas off these, you know, tops of these ridges, off the, just off the sides, and trying to look at travel routes in and out of the ridges just all over the edges, a little bit off the tops. And not, like I say, if there's a drainage, if it's a valley or anything that drops, you get a heavy rain, it's going to wash your pond out. So all we'd put them in would be take a place out of the drainage, just up a ways on the side a little bit, and a, a, a you know, travel corridor in and out of a ridge, and then take a small cat, probably dig them down. I, I would say you push off the... Usually, this area has a lot of clay in it, and usually we push off all of the the like the leaves and black dirt on top, and which would be just loose, uh, you know, fairly loose uh, dirt, and push that off till you hit the clay, and push the clay out, and then probably dig the thing. You're probably down, I'd say, probably end up down about uh, six, seven, eight feet, and then you, and then. You don't doesn't have to be a very big area. You just want it big enough so when you get rain in it, it's not going to evaporate out over the summer if you get a dry spell. So you probably you just probably you, then you push the clay back in it and then drive over it with a cat. You just make like a bowl, um, and it's probably only oh it's probably I don't know fifteen twenty feet twenty feet across maybe, and then round maybe or however you want to put it in. It don't make any difference. Just so it holds enough water that it won't evaporate out in a dry spell, you know, so they always have water. Even if it gets down to, you know, an inch or two of water, mud and stuff, they, they'll be in there using it, you know. 
And it gets to be like a gathering spot for them, you know, where they always hang around those spots because family groups are there all the time. And and uh, there's always deer at those spots. It's just, uh, I, I, as far as putting those ponds in, uh, they're, I don't, like I say, they're not, You, the only reason with the trees around it is to keep it from evaporating and to have, a, if you are hunting it, you want to get, I always look at the predominant wind on those things because it, that's always an issue. If it's always it's, predominant winds are usually in the fall or north northwest here, so we'd probably put them in over on the on the leeward side of the ridge, you know, on the south southeast side of the ridge, you know, where the wind would come over the top and and it would be more out of the wind down there too, and there would be the reason the deer would be there. He could scent the whole ridge from there for the north or north wind the trees you look at the i would look at where i got a couple of fairly good nice trees around it maybe on you know the downwind side of the of the pond when you put it in so you got a good place put a tree stand in there and get hit in there where you can shoot the pond that that's basically what i look for Mm -hmm. and then put the pond in accordingly to for your use it and the wind, you know, if you. Yep. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you speaking of your ponds, one other thing that I thought about as you're discussing this was that first pond that you and me went and looked at together. And yeah. I remember, you know, kind of asking you some of these similar questions and, and taking a look at that pond. But what stood out around the pond was the fact that you had, two trail cameras pointed at the pond. You had two trail cameras just 30 yards down the hill pointing at some beds and then another two trail cameras up the point on different trails. And, and I remember being just very surprised and Dylan and I were talking about this earlier, just at your, your comprehensiveness when it comes to putting trail cameras in, you know, areas like this and covering a lot of different angles and different spots. Can you give me your take on, on why you do that, on how you think about placing cameras. Like, like why was that the spot that you wanted six or seven cameras? And how do you go about thinking through that when you set up other locations? Uh, what I, first thing I do is look at uh, what the deer are doing at what time of year. Uh, those cameras we saw there were basically put in there for late season in the snow. Uh, and, um, when I, when I look at this thing, okay, so when I start out the year, I'll put, uh, in the summer, they're in their, in their bachelor groups on summer feed. So I'll place my cameras um, along a, a corn, I'll, I'll drive along a cornfield with alfalfa or clover next to it, and I'll look at where they're eating along a, a side of the cornfield. And where I see some sign of where they're eating, I'll stick a camera at, right in the, alfalfa on the edge of the corn facing kind of down along the corn edge and and then I'll, I'll or I'll put it out in the middle of the alfalfa field if it's a I have some 360 cameras that'll swing and take a picture in six different directions with whatever sensor is triggered and put them out in the field so you, you because all those deer are in groups and bachelor groups at that time you can get just about every buck it's using that on that camera in a week and so you know what's there kind of uh as the season progresses i move those cameras once they leave 
they they make a transition, you know, from uh, grazing to browsing. And they'll go when once the acorns fall, the apples fall in, in the fall, and around to October they move their feed food source from what they eat in the summer. They'll move back into uh, browsing more. And then I move my camera. They, they, those big bucks relocate. They leave their bachelor groups and they become loners and they move back into the security spots and rubs show up. I, I'll put my cameras on rubs then and scrapes that show up and run them on that for a while. And so when we were, when you were here late season, I'll move them out. They're, those ponds freeze over. I'll try to keep them open as much as I can uh, once it starts freezing. But those deer, that's still a that's a bedding point, and that's where they spend the winters. And that that the point was right above the pond. There we went out. We actually there was deer there when we drove up there that ran off. Uh, and I had cameras there. I so I have them. Uh, those I, I I face some of the cameras towards each other because I get deer behind cameras that never get in front of them. So. I just learned that over the years that, uh, and the trails coming in and out of there, certain deer use certain trails. So they don't, I might have it on a trail 20 yards over and not get them on. And then they're using the next trail over. So, uh, that's why I have a lot of cameras in certain spots like that. And I put them in bedding points and, uh, which was there where the, you saw the beds there in the snow when we were up there. And then, so that time of year, I move the other ones out to the food sources that I've left, like the bean fields. And I, up on top, on the other side, there where you guys were hunting too, there was turnips up there and they were pretty much pounding those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the crops themselves, those turnips especially, you want to plant them late so they don't get real big because you plant them, I always plant them toward the end of August. Uh, if you put them in too early, they get big and they get sour and they, they don't, hit them as much as they would a younger, they like younger shoots on all their feed, even, even, you know, alfalfa clover or anything. It's, if clover gets old and stems out, they don't like it. They they like the new shoots as they come up and more tender food, I guess, more better eating. I guess, I don't know. Yep. Uh, we certainly, like you said, we certainly saw, the deer hammering those turnips that you had there. No doubt about that. Um, and that was another spot where, like you said, you had multiple cameras set up all around that plot to catch deer and all the different places they might be. Uh, one of the things that always kind of, well, not always, but one of the things that perplexed me or that I wondered about with all those cameras that you have, I mean, hundreds of cameras that you're running in different places at different times, it seems like what's, what's your process for organizing and studying those photos so that you can actually get actionable data out of them. I, I know you spend a lot of time at your computer studying those pictures. What's what's like the strategy there? How do you go about doing it in a way that you can keep track of deer and and learn stuff from those pictures to act on? Yeah, what what I do is I, if, you know, there's the different age class deers. You know, deer a year and a half, two and a half, three, four, five. Uh, have a folder on every deer. So when I get it on a camera, I'll put it in a folder and then I put them in there by month because different times of the year, deer do different things and they, they live in different areas. Like in the summer and on summer feed, some of these older bucks, they may be a mile or two where they, 
where they where their home security spot is, where they'll spend the month of October. Then during the rut, they're wandering all over. But so I put them by month, and then I keep them from year to year. So if I if we if I get a buck on it, uh, the notable buck, I'll go back and find him the year before, the year before, the year before, and I'll look at what month where he's at, and then I can tell uh, from year to year they they kind of repeat. And we've been able to shoot bucks uh, from one year to the next uh, on the on the day they show up in a new spot uh, that, that they haven't been all summer. I can, I'll have cameras there year round on a spot and the deer will show up maybe, maybe it be the first of October, maybe be in November. And a year later, right to the day he shows up there again and he hasn't been there all year and we're able to harvest some good bucks that way. So I, I try to keep a fuller and it, what, what, what also teaches me is growth patterns on deer. If uh, it's been interesting to see, you know, deer follow them from one year to the next and see what they develop into, and to see that, you know, what the, how why did they go? I've noticed on some deer that I, by accident, uh, just by finding the sheds and and realizing that hey, this is the sheds off this deer, and they have some notable features about them, but they gone from a real nice, you know, real nice buck uh, of maybe 150, 60 inch deer and dropped down to something you see out there on the hoof. I thought it was a two-year-old deer, you know, rack size. He went down to nothing, but he got wounded and and just his health wasn't there and he just didn't grow the rack the next year. And then once he got his health back, the following year he came back. So those cameras show me a lot of different things on deer, what they, what they, how they develop, what they can, you know, what the injuries do to them, what uh, uh, you can just see so many things on them. So being able to have each deer and have five, six years of, of uh, folders and growth on them and a lot of pictures of them each year, uh, it, it's uh, interesting to follow that and see what, what, they, what they do or what affects them. And, oh, yeah. And the weather has a lot to do with a lot of things. And that was a... Something that was an eye opener to me too. As I we had a real early spring one year, and I thought, boy, the deer are going to be good on them. And then it was in the seventies and eighties in March and April, and all my trees budded out. And then uh, we had an ice storm, a hail storm, and a tornado in May, and it shredded all the buds off all the trees. It actually destroyed all the, the nut crops, the acorns, and and all all the apples and we had nothing in the fall that deer went into the winter with nothing to eat it just what was ever in the uh in the spring we had the, the, the i mean when we had the ice storm and, and the hailstorm and stuff the the fields were so wet and stuff the farmers we had rain all of may and they couldn't get in and plant crops so nothing got planted and deer went into the winter here it's the only time probably a 200 year, 100 year thing where they had absolutely no feed and they were eating bark off the trees and I never ever saw that, especially in Buffalo here that year. It was in 2012. In 2000, that winter in 12 and 13, uh, state severity index winter was the worst one in over 100 years for cold and deep snow and stuff. They came off in the spring and they looked anorexic on the camera. They were just skin and bone and 
and they had nothing to eat in the spring. And so they, they, when they, they actually, uh, when they got the feed in the fall, when we, we, because of all the rain, we had main stuff. They had, they, uh, had all the feed that the farmers planted, they had to plant a crop and they had to put it in after August 1st. So they couldn't, couldn't, uh, harvest it. And they basically planted brassicas, which was radishes and turnips and stuff to break up the soil. And because of all the rain in May, we had a bumper uh, crop of acorns and apples and everything. So once they got that feed, they put this weight on, and they put it on in a matter of two months. And and uh, my son's wife shot her first buck. It was a six-year-old buck we'd been following for several years and had the sheds off. And it actually lost 20 inches on horn growth. It scored 142. We weighed it live weight. It was 313. And he put that weight on in two months, but he was already hard horn when he got the feed. So he sprung back so fast and put all that weight on. But the racks all dropped that year. And I looked in the, even in the record book, there was only a couple bucks over 150 registered that year in the Buck and Bear in Wisconsin. And it was all to do with that that uh, winter and that spring it was all to do with the feed and losing all those crops in the spring or all the acorns and stuff. So uh, that showed me how important acorns were to them yeah. and in apples, but mostly acorns, I think really is a key, you know, for developing good growth on deer and stuff. Yeah. I remember you showing me some of these pictures of these bucks that, you know, lived through that, and and seeing exactly what you're talking about, but I also just it, it stands out to me just how good of records you keep, you know, and the fact that you, like you said, you've got these files for every single buck, and then you go back in there and you you seem to study them and think about what's going on and connect it, like you said, to weather patterns or food or all these different things going on. Uh, I mean, I don't know that 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 goes above and beyond what most people do, and obviously that's something that's been helping you you know have years like this where what did you say 17 or 16 or how many how many bucks did your guys kill this year 14 just a ton of big we had 17 and 14 yeah we're popping young i had those two young girls shoot those two younger deer their first deer and the one one of them was a pope and young actually scored 130 but uh yeah it, it was it was yeah it was a great year i mean it was and we had they were like I said. We had I think we had twelve that were from over. They averaged 152 inches, which was they were up the boom yeah. from down to you know 150 right in there. It's incredible. Well, Tom, I, I wanna I wanna be respectful of your time here and and start to wrap this one up. But I do wanna <clears throat> ask you one last kind of wide ranging question here. Um, you know, I see I see you and your story as as one about legacy you know you seem to have had this far-reaching impact whether or not you meant to whether or not that's something that you even pay attention to um you know the people you've influenced the people you've taught the the things you've done have have trickled out of buffalo county all across the country and you you really in a way shaped a whole generation of of folks within the hunting world um and just being there, you know, in person with you and talking to other people in camp, you could just see how, you know, everyone, everybody that was there, Tom, was there because 
they had developed really close relationships with you and other hunters there, and it really felt like a family. There was guys coming in, you know, that had been coming in for years and years and years. There was, you know, Matt was there who had his own farm in the past, and he said, you know, I'd rather not have my own farm and get to go to Tom's more often because of the people there and because of the, the stories and the camaraderie and, and everything else that you've built there, uh, which is which is all tied into what I want to ask you about, Tom, which is this. Now that, you know, you are, you're, you're one of the, the godfathers of the hunting world now, you, you've, you've seen it all, you've shaped a lot of it. When you look into the future and you think about the next generation of hunters, those folks that are teenagers now or in their 20s or 30s like me, who are going to be the folks that shape the next, next generation, what's the message you want to leave with them? If you could tell those people now something that you hope they can do or hope they think about or or anything you would pass on to them now, what would that message be? I, I would think the key there is trying to get them an opportunity to just get out there and sit in the tree and, and see nature. And I think it, it would it, that would uh, spur them into not being able to get enough of it. I would think that that would be the key to uh, they've got to experience it to to want to you know get the passion for it, and I think they they you need to do that at a young age. I think you know just usually you know as life goes on and myself too, uh, being able to grow up as a kid and, and do that is the key because things in life take you other directions, you know, on four years in the Navy and stuff. And, and, and you get that age of teenagers, you're chasing girls, <laughs> whatever, and you get away from it, but you always go back to it. Once you get that passion, you don't lose it, you know? And I think the key is, is, uh, trying to create opportunities to get, you know, the opportunity for people to get, get out there and do that. A lot of the trouble is, is so, Great populations in the cities and suburbs, and they don't have the opportunity to be able to experience that, you know. And it it it's uh, I think it'd be important for somebody to you know start maybe they maybe they could fund something like that would, you know, even Pheasants Unlimited or or Rocky Mountain Health Foundation, but to have areas where they you could they could bring kids in and just to get them to experience that, and I think they could get they'd get hooked yourself on it once they, once they were able to experience it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, uh, that message of, of sharing this hunting lifestyle that we have and helping more people get out there. I think that that definitely resonates. And something you told me last week when we were together that, you know, was interesting to me. You talked about the fact that if this farm that you own right now, if that had been owned by, by a single individual who just hunted themselves, you know, Maybe there'd be one or two or three people to hunt this farm every year. But in your case, by running the operation you do, you know, dozens of different people get to experience it. And, and you've been able to do that year after year after year, introducing or helping dozens and dozens of other folks learn about hunting, experience hunting, sharing that passion you have. Um, and I think that's more than anything. I think that's the legacy when I, when I, from the outside looking in, uh, you know, kind of examine, what you've done. That's what stands out to me. And that's what, uh, 
Uh, yeah, what well, makes me admire you, Tom? So thank you for for being such a great teacher and introducer to the woods for so many folks, and and I'm certainly inspired by that, and I hope a lot of other folks are too. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and always enjoy talking hunting. Yes, so. me too, Tom. So thank you for taking this time. All right, thank you. All right, and that's going to be it. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate you following along with this series of stories as I travel the country, hunted in different places with different people and trying different styles. It has been eye-opening. It has been challenging. It has been fun and interesting. It's It's been kind of everything. And uh, eventually I'm going to be able to unpack all that, make sense of it, see what I can learn from it, see how I'm going to change things or do things more like it in the future. Um been a heck of a year so appreciate you coming along for that journey and hopefully you've learned something along the way so with that said let's wrap this sucker up thanks for tuning in have a great rest of your week and stay wired to hunt hey if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to you should check out the weber slate rust resistant griddle so this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.